Welcome to the podcast dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I am not Jonathan Lee. I'm Nate Pearson, and, and I'm not a coach, but with me today is head coach Chad Timmerman. Hello. Still your line. <laughs> and Pete Morris. Howdy, guys. Hello. So, Jonathan, right now, he's at Nationals, um, Mountain Bike Nationals in, what is it, Colorado? Yeah, in Winter Park. Yep, really up high. He is trying to win. Um, well, actually, he's got like a two-year kind of trajectory to win. This is more of a recon for experience because next year is at the same place. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the same course or not. But um, to set expectations for everyone, we just talked about it before he left. He was He's probably around 305 right now for FTP at 142. And to win, he thinks he needs to be at 340 or 350. Mm-hmm. So imagine racing yourself at 30 watts less. Like, it's hard to win. It's hard to win. Yeah. People could get flats, though, so... Uh, something always happens. I think in mountain biking, it's less likely for it to win, but it's going to take a bit of luck to get him a top five, to get him on the podium by yeah. his own admission. Yeah. By his own admission. But this is like a building step to the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You'll, he'll know not a lot better next year what he's in for. Yeah. So this is your first time listening to this podcast. I would just skip this episode because <laughs> this is the first, no, second time I've hosted, I guess, but I'm not very good at it. So, um, listen to the next one or the one before, and then come back to this one and you'll see the difference. Um, okay. So the first thing I want to talk about is the, uh, something that happened this week, pricing update. We updated our prices on Monday. Um, and then, uh, in the forum, there was some discussion about it and there's one line of thing that people talked about that, uh, kind of got to us and what we've done in the past is before we did a pricing update we gave a week of people to be able to lock into the old prices um this time we didn't do that and i thought we discussed it as a team too companies change prices all the time and it's not a big deal um well chad mcneese actually wrote this in the forum and the reason why people are upset was because we had set a precedent before of always announcing Mm -hmm. that and uh the part that that hurt the most is that people said it was they weren't like mad at us, but they were disappointed. It was they, like they expected more. They expected more. Um, it's just like my parents, man. <laughs> yes. uh, so we actually like uh, Jonathan and I talked about it. We both lost sleep over it. Um, mm-hmm. I felt sick to my stomach with it. Uh, everyone, just so you guys know, if you're in the forum, like we're reading those threads. I think everyone in the company read that thread. So uh, and you know all. 60 of us or whatever, we are all um, talking about it. And so we came up with a new solution is we're going to open it back up for one week where uh, if you sign up in the next week, you can get locked in at the old pricing. So um, if you do that for one week until I think it's next Friday, uh, that's where we're going to go back to the new pricing. And what the new pricing is, is $19.99 a month or $189 a year. Um, and to put that into context, because um, it's perspective. Yeah, perspective, right? So it's... Uh, <clears throat> It's a small, it's a percentage increase. It's a small dollar increase, but a, a larger percentage increase. And because we're at scale, we're hoping that for you, people don't feel it a lot, especially those who are listening to this, who have already, um, this, you know, you might be listening to us a year later. Um, but for us, it is a huge thing for us to be able to, uh, hire more engineers. Uh, we've got, by the way, trainer.com slash jobs. We have six postings up for engineers. We're going to have four more. We also have coming up a product manager position. Um, you work with Pete and Brandon on how to build Trainer Road, which is a pretty cool position. Mm-hmm. And the other one that's coming up that's not posted yet is a copywriting position. And uh, for those who don't know, like you can compare us to some of our other competitors. 
we spend our marketing strategy is to teach like this podcast um, with the blog and with YouTube. We're trying to teach, not sell. Uh, we don't spend our money on pro team uh, uh, sponsorships, sponsorships yeah. uh, TV commercials. Um, we've done some ads, but they're very, very small compared to other people, other people. Right. So uh, the money I'm just trying to say is the money that you give us, we put in development and uh, teaching. And Chad and I aren't riding off into the sunset, like well, some people say. Although I think we could do a little like, like hand in hand, <laughs> like thing. So to put the price increase in perspective, um, if it's if you're on the yearly plan, it's ninety six cents more a week, and if you're on the monthly plan, it's a dollar fifteen more a week. Um, so if you have if you have like SIS gels, and I love SIS gels, I use them all the time. But if once a week you switch an SIS gel out for a banana, you'll be saving more money then you'll like, you'll be ahead than the price increase. Mm -hmm. So, um, just to put it in perspective and we're, I know we're not trying to gouge anybody. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I still think that we are the best value in cycling. Nothing makes you faster for less money. Absolutely. Agreed. Okay. So if you have anything else to talk about, um, on the forum or <clears throat> in YouTube, please message us. Um, we will interact. Um, sometimes I'm the one saying some of the stuff, but definitely having discussions with other, um, employees here. So mm -hmm. you're really talking to all of us when you talk to us. And, and thanks to everyone for the feedback too. Like, um, I feel so lucky that we have such an engaged, like mm -hmm. user yeah. base and, and users, other companies, they mess up and we just go, well, not using them anymore. Yep. And you just go away. Right. So mm -hmm. it's a, I really like interacting with everybody and I hope, um, you like that we are mm, kind of open and communicative, communicative. See, I can't. I can't host. Yeah. <laughs> you guys know what I'm saying. Let's move on to the questions. Alex, he says, hi, guys. Thanks for all your hard work. I am always looking forward to your podcast, besides this one. Um, <laughs> there seems to be mixed information about green tea and endurance out on the internet. Some articles state a 8 to 24% boost in endurance due to fat utilization, and others say that it just inhibits carb absorption and therefore should be avoided at all costs. Uh, just hold on there. Eight to twenty-four percent boost. Any, anytime you see numbers like that, be suspect. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Like I don't think EPO gives you an eight to twenty-four percent boost. Yeah, Maybe not. eight, but not twenty-four. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, since I live out of Japan, green tea and matcha tea are very common. Though coffee is popular too. I usually drink green tea with my breakfast at the office and also at lunchtime. Can you give some advice on whether or not I should be avoiding green tea, or if some consumption is okay, and if so, how much? Just further information, I am currently training for road racing. Everything is hilly mountainous out here, but for my category, not so long. Usually less than 100K. Thanks again, Alex. Okay, so let's talk uh, green tea real quick before we talk about whether or not uh, he should avoid it or utilize it. Um, so uh, the active component, I guess, within in green tea is uh, phytochemicals. And phytochemicals um, are basically produced by plants. Um, they can be poisonous. They can be medicinal. All depends on you know which phytochemical we're talking about. Um, and they come in numerous classes. Amongst them are alkaloids, polyphenols. Within polyphenols, you have flavonoids, non-flavonoids. Within flavonoids, flavonoids, flavonoids. I'm not sure how to say it. Catechins. So, so within phytochemicals, we go down a couple classes and we get to catechins, and that's what we're concerned with because that's what we're looking at when we or what we're talking about when we're discussing green tea. Um, four major types of them. Uh, they all have uh, long words and acronyms, and the the one that we're probably most concerned with, and that I see most of the studies mention mm -hmm. and is usually touted on the label of green tea extract or green tea itself is uh, epigallocatechin 3 gallate and we're oh, just going to yes. yeah that nice. one. Oh, that one yeah, yeah, yeah. it's egcg <laughs> so egcg that's that's the one 
So, and, and the benefit of EGCG in particular, but catechins in general, is uh, numerous and, and kind of wide-ranging in, in terms of their health benefit benefits. They're antioxidant, which, you know, we're, we're, us being endurance athletes and undergoing a lot of oxidative stress on a pretty routine level, that's a big win. Um, anti-inflammatory, who doesn't want less inflammation? Um, anti-carcinogenic, cancer's mm-hmm. never a good thing. Antihypertensive, so it can bring your blood pressure down. Antimicrobial, so it can help in combating infection. Um, and then for what it's worth, just I just wanted to touch on really quickly how we're always talking about antioxidants and how they blunt the adaptive effect of workouts, and you don't want antioxidants after your workouts. And then we get the question, well, what about antioxidant foods? And it doesn't really carry between supplements and foods. Mm-hmm. So supplements post-workout, if you're in a you know a building phase where you actually want the adaptation, try to avoid supplementation because they're effectively megadoses of antioxidants. Whereas within food, it's really hard to OD on antioxidants to the point where you blunt that adaptive response. Hmm, that's good to know. So food after afterwards yeah it's, go crazy. It's, it's like the basic is like if you're get, if you're eating whole foods you can never get too much pretty much can't because because yeah. the quantities you have to eat them mm-hmm. in are ridiculous yeah. and, and kilograms or pounds of things yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I so i take egcg mm-hmm. as a supplement and to time it i don't know what's the i don't know how close i can time it what i do though is i work out at like 3 to 4 p.m uh-huh. and then i take it at 8 a.m I don't know if there's any research that shows like hmm. if you take it like, you know, opposite 12 hours away, yeah, if you're going to blunt it less. But for me, anti-carcinogenic, like cancer is one of my big scares, right? Mm-hmm. You do all this and then you're gone at 40 or something. Sure. Um, yeah. That's not yeah, fun. And that, I didn't dig into the timing of, of intake though. So can't okay. help you much on that front, but you know, maybe we can look into that a little later. And if anyone knows about that, I've looked for this before. So if oh, anyone okay. listening knows, please yeah, know. uh, send us a message either in the forum, email us or uh, put on YouTube. But that would be, I think that's yeah. another interesting study to see if you can like when, because I think everyone thinks they should be taking antioxidants, mm-hmm. but can yeah. I not blunt and my micronutrients and, and the like The timing is a pretty big deal. Yeah. yeah. I, you, you could almost have like a time schedule for the day and when you should take each thing and like depending on how many supplements you have that's like what i do yeah yeah, yeah. you take a lot at the, all at the same time right yeah but i but they're all geared to be the, okay. like 12 hours away yeah uh, time released yeah well n- not time released but i just want them far, far away yeah, from far away. on the opposite side of my workout okay. day. i guess that would be three in the morning but i'm not going to wake up at three in the morning <laughs> well, to take a bunch. Not, not till next year when you're really going for it yeah exactly <laughs> okay so other benefits of catechins um are that they're neuro and dna protective protective um just lost my spot. Oh, and can have an effect on cholesterol, lower cholesterol, um, LDL in particular, the low density, more harmful form. Um, there's also thermogenic and, and metabolizing increasing properties. And I think that's why most people try to uh, incorporate green tea mm-hmm. into their diet or uh, endurance based diets. Um, so basically everything we just discussed is based is, is disease preventing attributes. So all desirable. And for those reasons alone, I don't see a reason to, to avoid it. I mean, even if it did show that it blunts the effect of carbohydrate, it would have to be to a pretty high degree for me to fly in the face of all those benefits just to save a little bit of endurance. Yeah. And then the metabolism increasing properties, Mm -hmm. um, there's studies, you can Google them, but significant body fat reduction Mm -hmm. when supplementing EGCG. So that could also like kind of counteract or balance it out if you think that there's going to blunt some of your adaptions or something like that. Yes. So um, in, in within green tea, there's a couple things that actually work together. So caffeine, we know caffeine is a component of it, and we know we, we've discussed ad nauseum the benefits of caffeine, especially for endurance athletes, even if solely to reduce RPE, but there are others mm-hmm. as well. And then something called L-theanine. 
um, which has psychoactive properties. So basically acts on the brain, which mm. again, probably is, is uh, going to be RPE related. But in any case, these two things in concert work really well together. Um, caffeine, we know, mobilizes free fatty acids. Uh, it, it aids in glycogen resynthesis. Um, it affects our alertness, you know, our cognition. cognition. And then the two together have synergistic effects, which affect uh, or can alter or give you a, a more stable mood. So mood stabilization is a term. Improve your focus, and that might be as much tied to caffeine, but it, the synergistic effect actually enhances that. And... That's like the smoothness of green tea versus like a shot of espresso, right? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think that's... Yeah, yeah. And so I've been calling it L-theanine, but L-theanine, that's probably... I think you're much better pronouncing these things than I am. <laughs> some, some of them I actually... Emma says, have you ever been to that website? It's, I don't know. It's, it's a pretty good okay. resource. Thank you. L-theanine. <laughs> so this is a supplement that you can buy and it's really cheap. I take it in 200 milligram, like one pill is 200 milligrams, but mm -hmm. you, I take... Maybe it's four. I take whatever double, like two pills of it, and I take it every morning with the caffeine too. It can have people on the internet, they report like lower anxiety, but it also it's just a smoother caffeine mm -hmm. release. Yeah. And now too, um, recently I've seen some kind of like no-dose products where it's caffeine where they put L-theanine okay. in it too at the same time to <laughs> kind of smooth it out. Yep. Um, it's also in some sleep products, like before bed, because it has like a calming attribute. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this is all total BS, but it... It's been reported in many times, and it's a uh, amino acid. It's generally thought of as pretty safe. Mm -hmm. So interesting stuff. I interesting indeed. Okay, so when it comes to the performance benefit, um, not a whole lot of literature to support it, unless you're a mouse. And and I know that they can extrapolate <laughs> animal findings to human expectations, yeah. and they do it all the time. So maybe there's something there, but in the case of mice, um, there was a slight endurance capacity increase. Is that with caffeine or just green tea without caffeine? I'm pretty sure that was, it might've been EGCG specifically. Okay. It's a great time to be a mouse. They've cured cancer and <laughs> yeah. like all sorts of things. <laughs> yep. Um, there there <clears throat> was a study that showed there might be a positive benefit on muscle wasting. There was a study that showed there might be improvement in immune function. Um, but all of these can just as all these studies are often enough countered with something that shows that there weren't effects, these same effects, or maybe effects to the contrary. And then there was one study that showed it might improve uh, VO2 max because the extraction of oxygen from the blood to the muscle is slightly improved. Hmm. So there are things that say, yeah, might, might be worthwhile from an endurance perspective, endurance performance improvement perspective. Um, and then as far as the studies on how it interacts with carbohydrate and maybe tones down the effect of carbohydrate, that was a tough one. Um, there was one in 2010 that suggested polyphenols inhibit inhibit carbohydrate digestion, but then there's another one in 2015, which I think was a meta study that showed that reduced blood glucose, level, blood glucose levels due to improved insulin sensitivity, hmm. which kind of, kind of counters, yeah, kind of counters that. So, uh, the evidence seems to support that there is improved blood sugar homeostasis and that alone, again, t to me says it speaks in favor of yeah. utilizing Sounds this. like a risk I'd be willing to take for, yeah. for the benefits here. Yeah, it sounds like it's either like neutral to good for, mm -hmm. for performance, but good for health. Yeah. Right? Which is the, the takeaway. And, and then so, so, so really, this boils down to <clears throat> antioxidants and, and getting high-quality antioxidants and, of course, timing it right. But basically, our recommendation is and will probably always be get it through whole foods when possible. So fruits and vegetables, largely. Um, coffee and tea. Absolutely factor into that. And then supplements and, and my take is supplements are really 
only appropriate when there's a, a recognized deficiency. Mm-hmm. I don't take supplements just for the take of su- taking supplements or just for the sake of taking supplements. <laughs> I know other people disagree and that's totally okay. That's, that's totally fine. Yeah, that's no. just my view on the matter. I, I, uh, I know I have expensive pee. Um, <laughs> yes, you do. But in my mind, uh, it's amazing. <laughs> the fruits and vegetables and coffee and green tea and supplements. You're I just, a, I just want a lot of I want to cover, I want to live forever. I want to live a long time. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, and, and, and you, you do eat pretty healthy. Very healthy. I do eat probably, yeah, yeah. probably here at the office. Your diet and your habits have like just keep improving, keep improving steadily. Yeah. And, and they're all maintainable or sustainable, which is, is the key. Mm-hmm. Okay. You guys ready for the next one? Yeah, let's do it. Indeed. Okay. Sam asks how to carry momentum through corners. So, he was at his local crit and what happens, you know, I'm just going to read it. It's a long one. I was going to try to paraphrase it, but I can't do it. <laughs> Jonathan's so good. Where Jonathan come back. Yeah. <laughs> My local crit course has a lot of slight downhills and flowy corners. We raise both men and women and junior adults together. And as a result, I am one of the heavier riders in the race. I find myself often running up on the wheel in front of me during a corner, whether it's a junior or a woman. And I have to slightly break as I go through a corner. I feel like it's not proper as I'm causing the people behind me to break, etc. But I have no real choice as I go through these corners faster than the guy gal in front of if I'm behind someone considerably lighter than me. I leave some space between my wheel and the wheel in front before these corners, but I usually gobble up that space pretty quickly and still end up on the brakes. Any suggestions for avoiding breaking through corners? I can't break my line as we're sometimes two to three across, though these corners and I have no la- through these corners and I have no lateral movement available to me. First, I think it's really important to point out that it's really hard to be smooth and to, to break appropriately when you have such a mixed field. Mm-hmm. I mean, f- women riders, junior riders, and then uh, I don't even know what categories these are, but <clears throat> mash those all into or put those all into the same field at the same time, and that's going to create a whole lot of issues you're not yeah, going to have to deal with if that. you're just in a Cat 3 race or a Cat yeah. 1-2 race. I, I would say, Samuel, uh, I feel your pain. I... I'm a bigger, heavier rider, and yeah. I hate inconveniencing people. So between those two things, uh, the the trick for me has been just move to the front, like do whatever I can to be at the front of the race or close enough to the front of the race that I don't have to break. And that's that's uh, served me really well over many years of figuring out that I have to put in more effort at the top of climbs and mm-hmm. things like that, because every time I can get to the front, my life is way easier. And the balance out of the extra effort for the not breaking is, mm-hmm. is awesome. And I feel like too, like this, it's going to be exaggerated with juniors and adults and women, uh, but, or men and women <laughs> in there. Um, but if you're at the back of the field, even if it's a just straight up cat three race, mm-hmm. there's still going to be one person oh, yeah. that touches it or doesn't take the line. Mm-hmm. And the then there's a effect accordion and... happens. Yes. And this happens every time yeah. uh, to everyone back there. So you just have to, I mean, really besides if you've got the gap, I've done it too, where I leave the gap and then they don't slow down. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. That's even worse, I think. Cause then you have to accelerate again. Mm-hmm. Uh, just gotta be at the front. And, and it's a fine tuning thing. You'll, uh, the more often you do it, the better you get at reading how much braking people are probably going to do mm-hmm. and how much speed you can carry in. Um, like, yeah, you'll, you'll just end up being more aware of what you need to do. And maybe if you are at the back, if it is a hard hill or something, just give that little bit more, give 10, 15 feet and, and start dialing it back until you can't catch. And then, you know, yeah. So <laughs> I had a huge problem this at sea otter and it was a, it's, it was like a slight oh. downhill into a one eighty, and then you would go right up a hill. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I would 
go so much. I'd leave a huge gap. I'd run into the people, and then I'd hit the brakes. I think I would hit them too much and then have mm-hmm. to reaccelerate. And I did that like four times, and I dropped out of the race. Pete, like, what would you it's do? hugely costly. Yeah, Pete and Chad, what do you do? Uh, no, I, so I raced that same course. It was so hard. It was like it's this kind of sketchy, narrow, turny descent into – more than a 180 it was like a 200 degree turn so basically impossible to carry speed through it. basically impossible to carry speed but there was a big runoff so on the exit you could go almost as wide as possible uh, there was that headwind did you have the headwind in your yes. race so it was it was like the perfect storm you had to break into the 180 and then as soon as you turned the corner you got punished for taking it wide because the wind would start catching <laughs> you away from everybody um and then it was an uphill and it cross, was like crosswind crosswind uphill and it was like a 30 second climb at six percent it was awful it's easily the worst crit course i've ever ridden other than anticipate your gearing so at least you get your gearing right. Yeah, uh, I kept fighting really, really hard to pass everybody into that. Yeah, I think that's what the best thing is. Like you um, said, first wheel. First wheel. And then I actually, then when I was taking it first wheel, I wasn't getting dropped. And the, t- the times that I would filter back and even be halfway through the pack, that's when I would have to chase for half a lap because I just couldn't hang no matter yeah. what. Well, then, too, that allows you, uh, so the tech, not the technical, but the hard part after that allows you to drop back a little bit, mm-hmm. save energy. Hmm. Um, when, when I was getting dropped, uh, a couple times I was like Nate, where I'd run into the back of the field right at the 180, and I would... I had to go 100% all out up the climb, and I would still lose 10 it's seconds. like a standing start yeah. into a climb. Oh, That's man. Yes. Punishing. Yeah. But then you don't have the draft of somebody because mm-hmm. everyone's sure. already moved. It's, it's yeah. hard. It's hard. Yeah, we feel your pain, Samuel. <laughs> um, I mean, cornering is one of the – makes one of the fun parts and the hardest parts of racing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it's just tidying everything up. If you can take the turn a little bit better. I, I did see that you mentioned it's two or three across, which to me that means there's a lot of room. Like I think mm-hmm. then you you have like a sphere around you where you can maneuver and break a little less. But um, I, with having women and juniors and, and just uh, probably a breadth of riders, people are going to be more scared of you if you're using up a lot of room. So take that into account. And if you're going in two or three, two or three wide, then it tells me the speed's a bit low. So mm-hmm. you always have the option of trying to bring the speed up so that you string it out. Uh, another option too is be okay with like leave that gap and uh, losing a few wheels in the turns. But if you're racing with juniors and women and you're stronger, sometimes it's easy then to move right back up mm-hmm. um, and not like accelerate and not have to break. You just leave more of a gap um, mm-hmm. and be okay if someone gets oh, in sure. front of you. Like you lose a one hand wheel, but if you're racing with, I don't know, people that are significantly less fit than you, it mm-hmm. could be a good strategy. Okay, you guys ready? Yeah, this is a long one. This is a long question. I got to read all this. Okay. Uh, Jason, but Jonathan did this on purpose. He put these yeah, questions. He must in. like, what are the longest questions for Nate? Jason, five part, five. I already messed it up. Good start. <laughs> five star podcast, gents. I have two questions. One about the three of you and another about me. First of all, thank you for your countless hours of education and banter. I can't think of a better way to spend an hour with you guys other than a great ride. There's a reason that you are beating Mr. Armstrong in five-star ratings. That is because we listeners have become to know you as like a family. That's right. We are beating Mr. Armstrong. Uh, so give us five-star review. I just looked. We're like 600 in front of him. So uh, he doesn't ask for ratings though. So, But I don't even think he knows there's a competition, but we're there not, is. We're not about begging. I know, right? <laughs> From Dr. Chad's in-depth Doctor. explanations Doctor to Doctor quotes. <laughs> Doctor, yes, exactly. Uh, depth explanations to Nate's describing his visit to the doctor to show him his saddle sore. That was bad. I still cringe about that. To Jonathan, uh, keeping everything moving along. I have a suggestion for a future podcast. 
We have picked up a lot of pieces in each of your backgrounds and how Trainer came to be, but I would love to hear a high-profile cycling per, uh, personality interview with the three of you to do to tell us. Sorry, uh, of you to tell us your stories and how you collectively got to this point. Yeah, maybe someday we can do the the history. How I met Chad Timmerman. <laughs> it's really you just beat everybody in races. Yeah, that was back when you were really fast. Yeah, I was pretty good at pimping my wares. Yeah, yeah. Were. yeah, actually, I came to your class. That's how it is. Mm-hmm. Chad was, uh, it was like training a road at a compu trainer studio, pretty yeah, much. Basically. Some of the exact same workouts. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sweet spot base. I mean, yeah. that, that was uh, five years in the making yeah. at that very studio. And then I pitched Chad to go do train a road at a Starbucks. I said, Chad, after, we can do after this. I, I don't think I won the, the, the uh, Mount Rose Hill climb, but I did break an hour. So it was, it was a big day. And you weighed 175 pounds. 178 pounds. Yep. You remember that forever, right? That was <laughs> yeah. back when Chad yeah, was. That was a big win for me. In the 380s for FTP. Mm-hmm. So that's his glory days. Uh, and not only that, a sub hour of Mount Rose is crazy <clears throat> fast. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't have a power meter, unfortunately, but I mean, you do the math, push a 178 pound rider up that climb and do it under an hour. You have to be generating big watts. Yeah. So. I think my PR is a 135. <laughs> yeah. I, I did it in two hours and 15 minutes the last time I did it, for example. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so that's probably all the history we need right now. Question about me. I am an old fat. Oh no, actually I'll say how I met Jonathan too. Uh, sorry. Yeah, do I love to do these little tangents. Um, Jonathan's not here to rain you in. No. So I met Jonathan. The first time I remember meeting him, I think I saw him at some races was it was at a 1 million cup presentation, which is like, like you kind of pitch your startups kind of thing. And he had his own startup. It was a great idea. And I think some other companies doing it, it was called hot lap and it was for motocross. And it was trying to figure out what kind of speed and time you could save by riding a motocourse. Like you, like you're actually supposed to not jump and he could describe this way better than me, but just to, to have like your phone on you and then maybe in the future have sensors on how quickly you could go. So you could mm-hmm. have accurate timing and also to figure out how am I riding this course and how to get faster. Um, it's kind of like similar, like the same kind of There's ethos. overlap, yeah. Yeah. The problem Jonathan says, and he will tell you that he wasn't a good engineer. So he tried and he actually built a lot of stuff and I saw it, but um, it just, he didn't have the, uh, he didn't go to school for engineering or was an engineer for many years before doing it. So it's very, very difficult. And that's, that's how I met him. Hmm. Yeah. Crazy. Okay. And then I met, sorry, I met, <laughs> no one cares about this. Just fast forward. I met Pete. Pete and I actually almost lived together. Yeah. Uh, he was really good friends with one of our roommates mm-hmm. and you moved in after I moved out of the same house, but yep. you were always there. Yep. And he makes really good cheesecake. You remember that competition with the roommates? Cheesecake? Yeah, that was a good one. He's actually a really good, <coughs> excuse me, a really good cook. Yeah, <laughs> in, Cliff in general. Bart, team camp. He cooks for like, how many, 15, 20 Yeah, people? 15, 20 people. Yeah. Uh, He's also, a designated cook in Kona. Yeah. Uh, Nate also took me to my first bike race, period. It was our first bike race. Yeah. Yep. And we got, we were one and two. I don't know who Sec- won. Second to last and last. Oh, yeah. One and two to last. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, kind of. I was thinking it from the back. We like, framed it a bit. <laughs> we did We did sprint against each other, I'm pretty sure. But we were like 20. I remember them like cleaning up the finish line like as we were crossing. Yeah. Just remember Sprinting that? Yeah, we were the other. very, very last people. We got, it was Boca. We got dropped on the first, Humble like beginnings. before the first climb. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like the first mini climb. We just rode together. Yeah. That's a good story. It yeah. was hard. It was really hard. Look at now. Nate's like, come on, come do this bicycle race with me. I'm like, it sounds great. Let's do it. And look what we did. (laughs) So that's a little bit of history on us. Um, Question about me, going back to Jason's question. I am an old, fat, slow rider. Mm -hmm. Um, But I love every moment of the bike. Anyway, that's great. I try to do my trainer at workouts on the trainer while my daughter is napping, but inevitably she will wake up during my training ride. 
I usually try to wait for the rest periods between sets to give her to get her out of her crib. When I get back on my bike to continue to ride, I notice it seems very laborious to get back into the swing of things. This happens with as little as two to five minutes off the bike rest off the bike resting. I am missing am I missing any benefit of the workouts by taking this extra rest between sets? Ultimately making me fresher for subsequent sets. What is going on physically that causes discomfort in the legs getting back on the bike after an off-the-bike rest? Is there anything I can do to alleviate this? Uh, great. Keep up the great work. Thanks again for the podcast and Trainer Road product. Love you both. Love them both. <laughs> Love you both. <laughs> See, I mean, it's just bad. Jason, uh, this totally happens with kids. If a kid and uh, both of you guys don't have kids, but you put someone in the crib, the trainer is such a great way to train, but then they wake up and you have to get off. And sometimes it's the middle of minute roll, sometimes it's the rest period. Mm. What's up, Chad? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> disruptions are, are never easy. So I, I, the only thing I can equate this to, or the closest thing that I can equate this to, is when I'm out on a, a group ride and somebody gets a flat. And then we have to stop for, you know, you hope five minutes, but typically they're the, the worst among the bunch at, tra- at changing a tire. Yeah. And it's yeah. 10 minutes later and you're still standing there. Do you have there. a tube, Chad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> so uh, th- there are a couple things that spring to mind. Um, first off, let's just look at the physiologic components, uh, it, depending on how long you're standing there, you're breathing and therefore your, your oxygen uptake, your heart rate and all that fall. So getting that revved up again could be a little challenging. Um, core temperature, <clears throat> excuse me. If you happen to be riding on a hot day, maybe it wells up a bit further. Um, I, I don't think either of these are what you're describing. I'm just kind of throwing things at the wall here. Um, so th- all of this leads me to think that most likely we're just seeing, uh, you're just experiencing your muscles cooling off. I mean, I can't really put, I mean, there, there's lactate in the bloodstream, but that starts to clear and that's not necessarily, that doesn't cause the heaviness. I mean, I, I've experienced it and I've thought about this a number of times too. And the only thing I can pin it down to is that our muscles cool off a bit. Mm-hmm. And there is something called the, the Q10 or the Q10 temperature quotient, which is basically the, the, it's a rate of change with either biological or chemical systems as a consequence of a 10 degree Celsius change in temperature. Hmm. So, and this is why, this is one of the reasons why proponents of warm-ups are so staunchly in favor of it, because they talk about raising muscle temperature and the muscle simply functions better at higher temperatures. Mm-hmm. Um, so there might be something tied to that. I mean, if your muscles are, are fully warmed up and firing on all cylinders, and then you stand there for a few minutes and they cool even a few degrees, that can have an impact on effort. And you're trying to get right back up to either, you know, following a flat tire, the, the speed that you stopped at. Um, getting back into a workout, if you were mid-interval and you try to dive right back into that interval and you're doing it with cooler muscles, that that's mm-hmm. it's going to put some a- additional strain on the system. feels awful, really. It feels yeah. terrible every time. <laughs> yeah, but physiologically, I can't think of anything beyond that that would really explain that. So that's, that's my best guess. So what do you do? Ease back into it when possible. Um, he, he did ask, and I forgot to address this, so I'll do it now, um, if he's missing any benefit of the workout by taking this rest. It really depends on, this, on the, the type of workout you're doing. If it's a low rest workout, like those reduced amplitude jobbers where you're at 88%, you jump up to 120, you mm-hmm. go back to 88, absolutely. That you're getting recovery that is not intended, and mm-hmm. that is kind of a race-specific workout, and it's supposed to maintain a high level of oxygen uptake. And you're going to disrupt that. So workouts like that and a VO two max interval, for instance, if it's a three minute interval and you're taking a one minute or a five minute break in the midst of it, obviously you're going to have to redo that interval because mm-hmm. it's definitely going to impact the quality of that workout. But in most cases, a really sweet spot and everything below it, no big deal. 
It's, mm-hmm. it's really not. You're going to get the work in, um, maybe even restart the interval if, if possible so that it's not disrupted if you're trying to grow, <clears throat> if you're in the process of growing your sweet spot durations. You know, you were at fives, now you're at eights, now you're at tens. Mm-hmm. Um, but all told, it's not going to have a big impact on your training with, with most of those sub-threshold workouts. I would think even threshold, if you're doing, let's say you did two by 20 and you had a mm-hmm. seven-minute break instead of a five-minute break, it's not going to have a huge impact. No on big deal, especially if, I mean... No, I mean, a lot of the physiologic benefit is there. Enduring 20 minutes versus a two by 10 is so much more psychologically geared or, or uh, targeted mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I'm not, as a coach, I'm not worried about it. Yeah. And as a, as a writer, your performance isn't going to suffer because of it. So don't worry about it. And then try to ease back into it. I yeah. mean, if at all possible, and, and to, to go back to the whole flat tire thing, for whatever reason, everyone feels like they just need to tear ass to get right back up to speed always and, <laughs> and i don't know what that's about can yeah. we just relax and realize we've been standing around for 10 minutes and just kind of work back into it so that we can enjoy the rest of this ride mm-hmm. and then with your workout you know again um depending on where you ducked out be sensible about where you restart try to restart in a recovery valley maybe yeah rewind a little bit yeah you know? exactly yeah wind it back up <clears throat> gently and gradually yeah I, I, I what i always think about is getting a flat tire in a race and then you go to the pits and oh, then, yeah, yeah. and then you Perfect. have to restart as hard as possible because they never put you in where you want to go. So you have to do the, probably the hardest effort you've done in the last, you know, mm-hmm. 10 or 15 minutes or whatever to just get back into the back of the race. And they yep. start you like, as they're coming by, they don't give you a head it de- start. It depends. Now. Sometimes they're, kind sometimes they're good. Sometimes yeah. Sometimes not so much. Yeah. It's like a roll of the dice, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, that's easily the worst I ever feel on a bike is mm-hmm. after a flat tire. And then from the psychological side of it, it's, it's a distraction. It's something that removes you from the focus you had. So that can be tough too. Mm-hmm. So again, and that's probably intensity dependent. You're, it's going to be a lot easier to fold your, or get yourself back into a sweet spot or a tempo repeat than it is a VO two max repeat. When you acclimatize your mental State role, you're right. Your state yeah. for a painful inter- inter- interval. Yeah. Wow. And then you got to take really yourself Jonathan. out of the situation. <laughs> then you got to put yourself right back into the situation. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah. just, just be kind to yourself, especially dealing with, um, little babies. It can be stressful because they don't do what you want them to do. <laughs> so, you know, you give them bottle and sometimes like they start doing that and you're like, okay, get on. You do three pedal strokes and they spit it out and start crying again. <laughs> and you do that a couple times in a row and it gets you totally out of the, like mm-hmm. the, out of the groove. Yeah, uh, and it's way hard to get on. Yeah, so you probably uh, don't have the option of postponing that workout. But if you do, well, well, you're it could be in the middle of it, right? Sure, you could have like one interval left. You're just like, kid, let me get through <laughs> yeah. this one interval. Uh, <laughs> what my kids love to do now is they, you know, I, they're eight and five, and I say, okay, I'm, I'm when I'm when I'm working hard, and you can hear me breathing, like I can't talk to you. And they go, okay. And then they just come up and just talk to me like question after question. I have the headphones on. Um, I'll be like, I'll take my headphones off when I'm not in an interval. And uh, it doesn't happen. And even having dis- discussions with young kids while you're working out in a threshold interval is difficult. Oh, yeah. No, just riding next to Amaret. Sometimes she'll try to talk to me. And my, my reception is a little cool. It's, uh, yeah. Okay. Ready to move on? Yeah. Um, and then I lost our place. Okay. Uh, Patrick. Hi, Jonathan. Uh, Patrick. Little does he know. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the great podcast and app. I got from 274 FTP and 205 pounds to 332 on a ramp test a month ago and now 170 pounds. That is a huge improvement. A big Wasper KG change. Yeah. Whenever you can get the your weight to go down and your FTP to go up, that's like it's a double win. You mm-hmm. just feel like a brand new rider. You are a brand new rider. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people comment on it too. Mm-hmm. They're like, whoa, that's amazing. <clears throat> 
Um, thanks to you guys, I signed up for a crit, and the first three laps were very fast, but I was hanging in there pretty comfortable with my TR acquired fitness. I had issues clipping my pedal, clipping into my pedal at the start, so I naturally took a position in the back of the field of 30. The crit was a three-corner one, with the sharpest one being from a descent to a low-grade uphill. Upon my fourth time getting into that corner, I was coming in wide on the outside, thought I was carrying more momentum, more momentum, put my weight on the outside foot, and saw someone crash about three bike lengths in front of me. I instantly grabbed a handful of my disc brake, and my wheel slipped out, and I went down. Oh, in your first race. Yeah. Um, I really feel stupid because thinking back, the crash in front of me was not that close, and I could have just sit up straight and brake smoothie, get my free lap, and then get back going. But in the midst of the action, I was unconsciously grabbing my brakes. Um, I know I should have been on the inside, as I hear it is generally safer, regarding the front and back position. The first and second wheel initiated the crash, so I don't think being behind the front would have helped this uh, in this case. About five riders had to abandon, and then another five to ten took a free lap. My question is threefold, and I hope that you get uh, you folks get a lot out of this. One, am I too nervous to be crit racing? Grabbing my brakes happens so quickly without having an actual decision that I'm thinking I might not be smooth enough for crits. Will experience help me out? I was lucky I did not take anybody down behind me, but I would not want it to happen. So, yeah, let's do number one. Yeah, mm -hmm. too nervous to you get. So there's a crash in front of you and you grab the brakes. <clears throat> Are you too nervous to be a crit racer, Pete? No. Uh, <laughs> and it's your first race, right? Like yeah. think of, think yeah. of any time you do anything for the first time, you're not the best at it. Yeah. Right. No matter what, no matter what it is. So it's always just about learning from this experience mm -hmm. and yeah, yes, will experience help me out. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like how many crits have you raced? Chad? I, mm, like hundreds, hundreds probably. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and I do remember early on in my crit racing career, um, one of our local racers, Bubba, he'd been doing it for a long time and seeing him line up and I just watched him and he was so cool. So composed. We roll off the line. He's conversational. I mean, he's done it so many times that he is just as relaxed as if it were a Sunday group ride. And I'm over there already white knuckling <laughs> the bars. I'm nervous as can be. All I can see is myself going down I'm watching wheels. I'm twitchy. I'm probably eager to grab the brakes too. But it didn't last. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. later on that season, I was a whole different rider in terms of you know maintaining a relaxed state. Bubba's a multi-time national champ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like it just shows you, yeah, right? But like, the, but the difference was he had a ton of experience, and I had virtually none. But over time, I I'm that guy now. I can be that relaxed at the start of a race. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I uh, one of the things is uh, kind of going in with the with the mentality of white knuckled, and you know you're going to crash because it's a dangerous crit. Man, you're just setting yourself you're up for failure. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, one of the things that uh, <clears throat> the decision that he made of grabbing his brakes so quickly that's a really it's what everybody thinks they should it's just do. A natural reaction. It's just a natural reaction. Yeah. So it's not that you can really fight that, but you can um, train yourself to. Um, I think it's much better to avoid a crash than to grab brakes and crash into it. Yeah. So uh, always. Uh, and a lot of the bigger races, you'll see people steer around crashes rather mm -hmm. than run right into the back of it. The people who run right into the crash are usually the ones not paying attention or on their limit. Um, and it sounds like I don't think you were you were near the front of the race. You were doing all the right things. So now it's just about um, 
steering around crashes and mm -hmm. and kind of knowing a crash is going to happen a quarter a second or a half a second beforehand can be all the difference if, if you if the crash catches you by surprise you're gonna have a much tougher time getting around it yeah, yeah. And, t and typically you brought this up the other day that you have like a clean clean exit usually mm -hmm. it might be a curb and that's not a great thing but typically there's grass on the other side of it if it's a it's like a warehouse crit mm -hmm. or a neighborhood crit or something so often enough it's better to avoid the crash and just take uh, the, what's, mm -hmm. what's in your path. Unless, of course, you watch the Salt Lake City Criterion that we watched <laughs> the other day. And just the opposite of that. A guy went over a barrier. I, he must have flown 10 feet before he landed. And his, his bike, bike went the other direction. bike went 10 feet higher than he yeah, did. Yeah, so it's, it's, in that case, I don't know, maybe crashed into the back of the field. But yeah, it's a pretty selfish move considering you're going to injure more riders. I feel like you don't uh, you don't get to make that decision. And it just true. happens Usually. in the middle Usually. of the race. Sure. Pete, that's a great point. Like all the crashes that happen in front of me, you, if you, you can either see them like you, you know, people are getting locked up mm -hmm. or you, uh, it's far enough ahead that you do have that <clears throat> half a second to kind of react. Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen racers on, I've seen video races where like the field slows down so much. And then one person grabs the front brake too much that mm -hmm. he just endos over mm -hmm. the front. There's no, no one touches them and there's oh, no God. crash. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think uh, it's kind of just what you guys were saying. It's the nervousness. And I'm, I used to be a lot more nervous. I'm still nervous for every race when I get to the line, but as we get rolling, mm -hmm. I don't feel nervous, nervous anymore. Yeah, 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 it yeah, goes yeah. away. Yeah, and I do think when faced with a crash, when you have that half a second, second to process what's going on, whatever fraction of a second it is, it's enough time to actually make a decision. It's not a conscious one, but I think too many racers abandon hope too quickly. They mm -hmm. just assume I'm going down and they brace for impact. They grab those brakes. They just kind of let the situation unfold under no control of their own. Whereas they have enough time to affect a bit of change. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can, you can tuck that shoulder, you can turn that wheel. You can maybe not grab the brakes as hard as, as you want to, mm -hmm. but too many riders think there's no way to save this. And they just instantly give up when a lot of the times it's savable or, or mm -hmm. at least you can kind of downgrade the severity of it. I'll, I'll, I'll knock on wood. I've been near or around tons of crashes in the last handful of years, and I haven't crashed in a long time. Like I haven't actually gone down. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm, I'm screwed now, <laughs> no, no, but, um, I'm say it. no, I, I was thinking about, uh, like the Salt Lake city crash. Um, I had a really what could have been a horrific crash at a race called Merco many years ago. Mm. And it was my first real big race. There was moto motos like with cameras on them and I was freaking out and I dropped my chain and then, um, you know, all of the things that happens when you're a fresh racer. Um, but there was a scary descent and a guy rode off the road on the descent. It was kind of this farm hill. And, um, <clears throat> what ended up happening is their team car stopped on the side of the road and I came around a blind turn oh, yeah. mm -hmm. and, uh, hit another rider and bounced <clears throat> into the car. And so I could have just locked up my brakes and put my face into the back windshield, but I thought, well, there has to be a way to not hit the car. And so I kind of low sided myself and slid on the ground and ran into the underneath of the car instead of the big. That's crazy. Um, and so there was a huge dent on the back of the car, and all I did was ask for a tool to straighten out my bars and fix my saddle, and then I finished back the race. On the road. This is a mythical Cliff Bar story about how Pete like ruined a car and was fine and just got back up. Because yes. I think when one of your teammates saw it, right? You we just... saw it at the gas station later that day, and they were going, "Look at the dent from your look at what you did to our car." And there was a very large dent in the back of the car. You're, you're a big boy. Um, For people who are on the uh, who are just listening, can't see you. How much do you weigh, and what's your height? I weigh 200 pounds, and I'm about six one, um, and I'm wider. 
right? Yeah, like you, I'm, a, I'm a wider than a normal cyclist. Yep. You look like you should play football, mm-hmm. not be a cyclist. Probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another thing you can do, and this is what I this is what I do. You watch our videos on youtube.com slash trainer road. Uh, we do highlights of races and Pete like critiques all the bad things I do. But you can also watch just the complete race. And if it is, there's like kind of two modes I feel like in a crit or road race. There's the one where you're all strung out and going fast. And that you got to keep wheels pretty tight. Then there's like where the peloton is kind of fanned out a little bit. And you can still be going fast. But um, I those are the situations I feel where crashes are most likely to happen. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you can leave a little bit of gap or kind of be on the outside and still get a great draft. And you'll see um, people call me out on YouTube like, you're not following close enough. But if you look at my watts, they're like 150 watts. But I've got a an extra half-length bike to, to – um, to break. Yeah, there's so, still a lot of draft going on. Mm-hmm. Exactly, because you have the whole peloton in front of you. Yeah. Um, so I, you don't have to be that close. You can give yourself an exit, or I'm running kind of on the outside or on the back, just so I can give myself exits. I don't mm-hmm. like being in the middle of a peloton where I am almost touching the wheel in front of me, and then I've got two shoulders next to me and someone behind me, because mm-hmm. then if a crash happens, you're instantly going down. Where, to go. mm-hmm. yeah. where they go. So it, you can kind of do that. You're going to use a little more fitness, though, because if it does string out, you might actually, if it does string out, you just let people file up in front of you. Um, and then that's yep. a great time. Then you're further back, which we're going to talk about in a second, where you can kind of slingshot when it slows down again, uh, rather than trying to always fight to be the the first few wheels. I think that's the yeah. biggest like misconception that... Is you have to be right up front. Everyone always says, crit, you got to be right up front. You got to be right up front. You got to be right up front. But there's times in situations in certain crits where you don't want to be right up front. Mm-hmm. It takes more energy. Um, it's more dangerous. It's more taxing. You can get a free ride on the back. It's really, I actually, Pete, let's ask that yeah, question. Yeah. When do you want to be at the front and when is it okay not to be at the front? Uh, for me, like you'll know, we do a lot of videos and we race a lot of crits together now. I'm either sort of off the front or I'm mid pack, right? I don't actually hang out right at the front very often unless I'm specifically doing something. And like you said, if you're, a foot or two off a wheel, I can get a way better view of what's happening in the race. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the the next step of this experience that you can get by crit racing is you can tell what's going to happen if you're paying attention in the race. Like mm. we were laughing. Uh, we, uh, oh, it's, Jose, it's, it's amazing. Jose was, we raced on Tuesday and uh, the local, a local sprinter, um, w- a move was up the road and Jose wants to win right obviously um and so i'm behind jose and he reaches down and tightens his shoes both of them you know like click click mm-hmm. and then front one click click and then does the other shoe i'm like well he's gonna bridge you know we can just you can just watch it unfold in about then he gets in his drops <laughs> and then 10 seconds later we get to the straight and then he lights up a sprint and uh you're like of course you were gonna do that you know how could you not see that that was gonna happen so things like that happen all the time and people start looking around and you know it's it's just people forecast what they're gonna do all the time mm-hmm. and so being mid-pack, you can see a bunch more of what's going on, um, and you, you're you not uh, – people can't punish you for making mistakes when you're in the middle of the pack. If you're on the front and you make a mistake, people can punish that. Yeah. So The only time I think it helps on the front is if there is a attack, you don't cover it. You have to let the other people from behind fill in, and mm-hmm. if that happens, you can have a much easier acceleration. Uh, I think – It's a bit it, of a gamble, but yeah. Yeah. In my experience, if it's technical course – um, where it's going to be strung out almost the whole race up front is mm-hmm. imperative. But all these other ones where, you know, you could line up 14 riders across the road yeah. um, and it's not flat out fast the whole time. 
at least in the lower categories, uh, you can totally move up a whole bunch more than that. The other kind of, kind of funny thing that happened in our race is we were doing like one, two attacks and Pete loves to attack when it slows down. And I, uh, we'll have this on video, but we, we were going, I had just attacked and I turned to the guy who covered me and I go, there goes Pete. And I didn't even know you were going and you go on my right side <laughs> in the gutter, like a second later. Um, and you just go and the guy's like, I can't cover that. Yep. Okay. Yep. And then you actually start the question with, am I too nervous to be crit racing? And, and it, this is simplistic and easier said than done, but relax. I mean, th there's a reason throughout so many of the workouts with the on-screen instructions, I, I coach relaxation. And mm -hmm. it's not just so you won't waste energy. It's also so that you can have, I mean, being relaxed in a situation like this buys you that fraction of a second that can actually make the difference between falling and not falling. Mm -hmm. yeah. So do your best to relax. And again, it's easier said than done, but there are techniques. Drop your shoulders, soften your elbows, take big breaths. Whatever works for you, if you can get just that little ex extra bit of relaxation, you will be a better, calmer rider. That and, was his, his next uh, question, was it tricks or exercises to be calmer? So yeah, you just said go. them. So you say it in the workouts for Trina Road. A lot, because your posture mm -hmm. carries. I mean, I mean, if, you're, if your shoulders are around your ears and your arms are locked out and you've got a death grip on the bars... It, as soon as anything happened that, that just just uh, unnerves you even slightly, you're mm -hmm. probably going to grab those brakes and probably harder than you, than is necessary. Mm -hmm. So if you start from a, a relaxed place, it's less likely. I mean, it, maybe the reactions are slightly slower. It doesn't matter. You you don't react as violently. Yeah. So just just it, it actually, I say I always talk about dropping the shoulders. It really yeah. starts in the face. Right, your expression. Sure. If you're already wearing your pain. Get rid of it. Relax your face. Um, it carries down through the neck. And any, really, anything that's on your face is probably going to affect your entire posture all mm -hmm. the way down your frame. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, you can tell when I'm struggling in a race, my shoulders will be very close to my ears mm -hmm. because Nose I'm doing <laughs> as much as I possibly can. And I always try to, you know, wind myself back from that. Um, yeah, it's it makes a huge difference in how you feel while you're racing uh -huh. and doing if if you get caught in a situation. And, ju and just look at the guys who handle these situations best. They have the most relaxed postures. They're draped on their bikes. They look mm -hmm. like they're they're one with the bike. They're they're just out for a ride. They're not gutting themselves trying to hang on to something. And even when you are gutting yourself trying to hang on to something, mm -hmm. you don't have to look that way. Besides for him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some people the exception. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean their posture is what it is. But even someone like him could probably benefit from learning how to. Yeah, retract those shoulder blades. And the computer classes that we used to go to, we talked about earlier, used to always say, no earmuffs, guys, no earmuffs, because people <laughs> try to wear their shoulders as earmuffs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you would yell at us. Yeah. And then every time you'd be like, oh. And it carries from there. And, and a lot of the times, I've said it before, any expression on the face, the only acceptable expression when you're suffering is a smile. <laughs> if you're going to wear any expression at all, make it a smile, because you'd be surprised how that affects your mental state. Mm -hmm. But if you don't want an expression, just relax. Go slack jot. Look at all the guys riding up, uh, what they climb today, <laughs> Tourmalet or, yeah. or not Tourmalet, but uh, I can't remember the climbs. Big mountain. For today, mm -hmm. big mountains. The, the best riders, I mean, they look like they're not doing anything. Yeah, yeah nothing. This is actually, uh, I notice I do this even in social situations. I mean, are you ever out there and you're like, whoa, I'm just, I, ju I just shrugged my I shoulders for a little bit. I do it in the podcast. I mean, <laughs> yeah. As soon as I feel them coming, I was like, oh, dude, relax. Yeah, yeah. relax. Um, the other thing, you could try this and, uh, you know, placebos work too, but if I tell you that L-theanine relaxes you, <laughs> you should just take it because it's like, you know, a couple cents, uh, uh, you know, a pill. So sure. that could be something too, to kind of get the anxiety out of there. Um, so try that and then actually talk to your doctor, then try that <laughs> disclaimer. There we go. Last question is, do you think it would be best to have rim brakes for crit racing? I hear rim brakes tend to block the wheels less than disc brakes. So kind of, he's asking, well, what if I just couldn't brake as hard? 
Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be better? We, and we had, Chad and I had a pretty funny discussion about this when we read this question. Um, we'll say, uh, I know a famous crit racer who used to loosen the brakes of his athletes he was coaching so that they would only, a full pull would be about 50% of mm-hmm. your braking. Um, and that that's more back in the days of rim brakes, right? You can't really mm-hmm. do that with disc brakes anymore. Um, but the idea being you never need a full fistful of brakes in a crit race mm-hmm. unless you're crashing. Um, and so his philosophy was if you, if you have more modulation in your brakes, you'll be able to scrub less speed. It's just like a race car. You want to break the minimum you can to keep going faster yeah. the corner. So if you're braking just, a, just enough to make it through the corner, that's exactly as much as you need to break. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Chad, you said you've done drills with this too. Yeah. Well, my first collegiate coach did that very thing. He actually mm-hmm. softened my brakes up. So, mm-hmm. And it was it, it, absolutely unnerving, but it also showed me that I don't need to break nearly as much as I'm breaking. Mm-hmm. So it was an effective teaching method. <laughs> A little I, scary, but it worked. I feel like for me, it would be the opposite where I'd go to what I would normally go to, feel like there's no breaking, mm-hmm. and then panic sure. and do as much as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would just mess me up. And then on a regular road ride, ri- ride I would probably flip over the bars <laughs> because I would be used to the little half breaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of the tricks is um, <coughs> use your brakes less in a crit. Uh, you don't need to brake as often as you think you do. A lot of the times, oh, uh, it's amazing watching even our local, our local Tuesday night it's impossible. You should not have to break ever on that course. There's no right? reason to break on that There's course. There's no reason. And you'll see guys touching the brakes in the straightaway. And so it's just instead of going around or, or standing up a little straighter, um, people hit brakes and it's, it's burning watts. You, mm-hmm. you put that into your bike to, to make you go that fast. So you're just scrubbing off. You're making yourself have to pedal harder sometimes. for you. Yeah. yeah. So practice a little less breaks than you think you need. And with disc breaks, that means breaking less often rather than less every time. Is there ever a time to break in a corner? Well, it, it can be. Uh, we, yeah. So it there's, depends actually, on, there's actually quite a lot of finesse breaking that goes on in a tightly mm-hmm. knit bunch. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're close and you're trying to hold position, you've got to use the brakes. If you don't want to come off someone's wheel, you've probably got to use the brakes mm-hmm. unless they're just drilling it and you're just hanging on for dear life. Yeah. Uh, in, if you're in the middle of a corner, I think depends how much traction you have. Uh, the, the real problem with breaking in the corner and why people crash is they overwhelm the traction of their tires. So if you already have used up if you're if the taking the corner at 30 miles an hour uses up 90% of your traction, you have, you can add 10% more in braking force mm. and you will slow down. But if you do 15% more braking force, you will slide out. So think of how fast you're going through the corner and how much of your tires you're actually using. And you can break in the middle of a corner and it's okay. But if you're going as fast as you possibly can, you cannot break. And that's why people mm. like on scary descents when they grab brakes and they just straighten it out and fly off the edge, um, you could, you probably would have been safer not breaking and really just seeing if you hang on, seeing if you hang on, which is a terrifying thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I just talked about this recently, but a lo- uh, recent epiphany that I've had is that feeling of the road pushing back because before when I would get that feeling, I would hit the brakes a little bit because mm-hmm. I'm like, Ooh, this is the limit, but I'm not even close to the limit. I'm yeah. probably 20% to the limit. And that's what, uh, it was actually ri- riding with, um, the masters one, two, three, which is a much faster field where they all just rail it. And I think I took the very, the f- oh, it's so bad. <laughs> you can see a video on it. The first, the first corner I had raced with the three fours and the threes. And they took that line at a very different, they took that mm-hmm. corner at a very different line at a very different speed. And I had done it like, I don't know, 
four races before that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I do it with the masters and they go way faster and a lot tighter. And I mess up the first line. But after that, just uh, being in the group and having that road pushed back at you. And not, I, I braked way less on tighter turns mm -hmm. because of the feeling like it's okay to have mm -hmm. that feeling. And I, I know from personal experience that it can be really scary. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a tricky way to yeah. learn. Cause on the one hand, you've got someone in front of you and you're like, if they can do it, I can do it, mm -hmm. but they are doing some things differently. So yeah. it's not just because they can make that line work for them. You can make that line work for them. If you do everything the way they do it. Yeah. You can, yep. you can make that line work for you, but there is a learning process. So do recognize when there's a big gap between the people you're trying to hang on to and your abilities mm -hmm. and, and, you know, grow that and grow, or I'm sorry, shrink that gap over time, but it's not going to probably not going to happen in a single race, probably going to happen over the course of a season. One of the things, uh, the limit of your tires usually makes noise. And so if mm. you're hearing what sounds like Velcro ripping off or like, um, the, I don't know. Singing. Yeah. Singing is what we say, but it sounds, it has a very specific sound. So if you hear your tires making that noise, you really are on the limit. You probably mm -hmm. are at 95 or a hundred percent. Um, that's when you know, and I barely, I so rarely hear that noise um, that that means I'm far away from pushing my traction limit all yeah. the time. And you're railing it. I feel like, Chad, a lot of racers, you're either limited by your, your skill and traction <clears throat> or your fear. And I feel like <laughs> uh, a lot of li racers are limited by their fear much more than their traction. Like, Absolutely. So that's, and for me too, it's, it's less of a technique thing. It's just that fear of feeling the push back and yep. taking the corner at 30 and turn off camera. Mm -hmm. Ooh, that can and be that scary. that ties back to the experience. I mean, that fear just dissipates, dissipates, dissipates the more you do it. Yeah. And the more you gradually push those boundaries. Don't try to do it all at once. Okay. Yeah. Ready for the next question? Let's do it. This question is from Nate. He's a CEO of a local <laughs> trainer company. Um, I want to talk to both of you guys. We haven't talked about this before about cat two to cat one upgrade strategy in the U S because okay. Pete, you're cat one, yeah. Chad, you got points for cat one, but for some reason didn't upgrade at the time, mm -hmm. but you're kind of in the same situation I am now is here's the problem. Uh, after cat three, you to get so you need thirty points to upgrade from two to one, and you get those <clears throat> points by placing in races. Thirty five for two to one, right? Oh yeah, thirty five. Sorry, yeah. thirty five, even more. You can only get ten of those points from masters racing mm -hmm. or from like local series racing. So if you have like a Tuesday night crit, you can't get all the points there. Mm -hmm. You have to go to bigger races. The problem is P one two is such a step up from Cat mm -hmm. three, Cat three four, Cat five. I feel like in my experience, five, four, and three are actually pretty close and mm -hmm. there's like the same kind of riders and all of that. Yeah. Then you get to P12 and it's amazingly it's fast. Huge jump. Also, you're a master's racer. Is it like when you're 47, Chad? Mm -hmm. 47, like racing with 23 year olds, it's much harder. Mm -hmm. um, two, you run into specialists. So like right now on a cat three race, I can sort of sprint with the sprinters. I can sort of climb with the climbers oh, yeah. and um, I'm good at flat time trial stuff. Yeah. But in cat one, P12, I can not climb with the climbers <laughs> and I cannot sprint with the sprinters. Mm -hmm. uh, so what do you, what's the strategy, especially if you're like a master's racer to get those points to go from two to one? Yeah. I, I had one particular strategy in the day and it wasn't even intentional. It just worked out because of our race calendar with the team I was on. And that was to do stage races, stage races award, big points. They give you stage points and they give you overall points. And those overall points are huge. Mm -hmm. So if you can get in the top eight in a stage race, and if you can do well in a couple stages, you'll get your upgrade pretty quickly. 
Isn't that just as hard though? Because you have the P one two or the P one people in there. It's plenty hard. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying there's there's a lot of points on offer <clears throat> and more options <clears throat> and and consistency in a stage race. Um, for, from my point of view, there's it's just like the tour. There's 20 guys really trying for the stage race, or if there's only 50 guys, there's 10 guys really trying. Yep. So you really only have to beat a handful of guys to get points in a stage true, race, yeah. and it's all about consistency and not losing any time. All right, you don't have to win any races. You just have to always make it and never like you're a pretty good time trialist so you're not going to hemorrhage a bunch of time in a time trial so you you really can get in that like fifth through tenth and there's points there all yeah. the time right yeah. all the time our rider can make that happen and the beauty of it is <clears throat> if you have a good time trial if you have a good uh, a big engine if you can you whittle down your frame and you're a good climber mm-hmm. i mean relatively or good enough good enough yeah. yeah yeah so you don't lose too much time mm-hmm. what do you do if you're not a good time trialist Man, pick another sport. <laughs> no, like, well, so yeah. Brandon or here, be, get a, be a yeah, real good he picks time like races with uphill time trials. Mm. Yeah, uphill finishes, right? Uphill finishes, yeah. Yeah, so he, he and he's, I think he's a sharper rider than he gives himself credit for. I like, think so too. Punchier. Um, he should pick like five to 10 minute finishes, mm. but he, that, those are hard. That's even harder to find than just an uphill finish. A lot of, a lot of the stage races he, do, he does finish on like a 20 minute climb or have an uphill uphill time trial um he could he could easily i mean that's how he does it right he's a good time trial too he's a good time trial so he just got his cat one upgrade Mm -hmm. by doing stage races so i i I hear what you're saying too is another strategy is really be specific about doing courses that you're good at Mm -hmm. Uh, it also really helps i when I got mine, I'm gonna. I get to laugh now because back in the olden days, you had to do your cat two to one in less than 365 days. You yeah, that's had, same that's rules insane. Applied. That's why I missed my one upgrade. Mm-hmm. That wasn't why. I I got it in my head that racing cat two would be good experience for me, and I didn't want to jump right into the P one two. So I thought I'll just omit the P one aspect of it and just race twos for a while. Mm-hmm. Proved to be a huge waste of time. Actually, twos don't race like teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was the big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way I lucked out is I trained really hard and had a super good run of fitness for about two months. And since I was just hitting everything, I just raced every weekend, mm. right? Like I went and did, ride the, ride I, the wave. I, I, yeah, I rode the wave and I did every P12 <clears throat> race. I think I raced twice a weekend for eight weeks in a row and I got lots of top fives and won a couple of races, but it, I struck while the iron was hot and like had a really good your confidence also rolls with you. So, sure. you know, as soon as I started doing well and I felt fast, it's so easy to go to a race and be like, I'm going to smash it. Yeah. Um, and I think also I was on a team where to do anything worthwhile, you have to be a one. And so there was some pressure and I, it just was, you, you go into a race with the philosophy is I'm here to earn points like you do. And it changes the way you race the race, right? Yeah. Yeah. I actually kind of, sometimes I don't even finish if it's, I'm mm-hmm. not going to get points because there's the danger of the final sprint. And I'm mm-hmm. like, sure. I want to race again tomorrow or the next weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're clear on what you're after. Yeah. And if it's points, then why subject yourself to that danger? Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, what about, uh, there's like cat two only stage races, right? Mm-hmm. So cherry picking those? <clears throat> That's exactly what I was just talking about. So when I did the whole cat two approach, it was because, you know, I didn't feel ready to jump in with the, the pros and the ones. But the problem there is uh, unless you have teammates, and even if you do, it's it's very uh, self-motivated or, or everyone's um, – Everyone wants to win as a cat too. Everybody wants to win. There's not really anyone out there who's willing to work for a teammate. It's like everyone's a two and they want their one and they want to win as a two. And there's just not the, co- the team cohesion that you get 
with P12 racing. Are you saying that's a good thing or a bad thing? Bad thing. In, in terms of collecting points, you're basically one man against 90 instead of mm-hmm. you and your support crew and then maybe some riders who aren't really there to win their their support also. Yeah, uh, at Cat 2 races especially everybody it feels like everybody wants to upgrade so everybody is fighting you for points. Mm-hmm. And it's not like in a P12 some guys don't care about points at all, no, right? Yeah, exactly. They're they're just there for they the have team. Their, they have their roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, this is that brings me to my next point is about picking races based on field size. So USAC upgrade points are a little wacky in my opinion. <clears throat> if you have a race with eleven riders, it's a road race. First place gets seven. The next kind of um, bucket is from twenty one to forty nine. So if you have forty nine riders yeah. and you get first place, you get eight points. Mm-hmm. If you have eleven riders and you get first place, you get seven points. Mm-hmm. Like. And then that goes down to sixth place if you have 11 riders. Yeah. Sixth place gets one point. Mm-hmm. So if you can find those road races that are 11, That's, 15 guys. This is another girls. pitch for, for stage races because for whatever reason, at least back when I raced, so we're talking 10 years ago, um, stage races were big draws. Mm-hmm. I think uh, people knew they were going to get three or four races in in as many days or you know even three days, four races. So they were willing to travel, and, and there were big fields. I mean, when I – did really well at Cascade and got a bunch of points for it. It was because the field, I think, was 110 guys. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. So when you when you win a TT in a 110-guy race, that's, we never, that's pretty motivating. That's motivating, but you get no points Huge for TTs. Motivating. Uh, not the but TTs, for the overall. Not the TTs, but the race started with the TT. Yeah. So I got the jersey, then I protected the jersey, and then I you know, finished with a small mm-hmm. margin. But either way, I got high finishes in all four stages and a high finish overall. Yeah. And that so got you, me. Yeah, eight. so you maxed your points for the weekend. A lot right? of points. The max points is, uh, I think, 20. Mm-hmm. For At the two time? Two. Yeah, actually. No, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Okay. Yeah, I... Yeah, I think um, racing, I think finding races that aren't necessarily suited to you, but where you can have a plan, a strategy that would work, like you could succeed if you, so many road races now where you make the, the early break and as long as you shed some of those guys and then if some if someone catches you, like it's you between five guys, you're guaranteed points if yeah. you make the early break. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so all you do is fight for the early break no matter what. Um, and guys fall apart during road races. And if there's only 15 people, no one's going to chase. I mean, it's, sure. it's pretty, it's not easy, but it's a good, it's a good plan of attack it's a good strategy. For, for points. So I want to summarize this for everyone who wants to upgrade it. And this probably carries over to cyclocross and uh, mountain bike is, uh, one, get master's points where you can, because in my experience, master's has been safer and relatively slower than with the young people. Not back in my day. <laughs> I'm telling you, no, they're... Okay. Um, they're maybe nicer. I don't know. Oh, not less yelling. Uh, two, do like pick courses that are to your benefit. That's kind of everyone knows that. Uh, three, do stage races because there's not only you get a lot of races in a weekend, but you get the overall positioning and you mm-hmm. get a whole bunch of points on that. And then kind of if you can pick those races where it's only your category and not the upper categories. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather, of course, race a four race than a three, four race and our other race, a two race, especially a stage race than a P one, two. And that just, I think where that the inflection point is biggest is with the P one, two, because you're racing against teams and that can just be demoralizing, mm-hmm. uh, versus a just two race. And, and it, you're kind of lucky your, your fitness level, um, was adequate for P12 racing or is adequate for P12 racing. A lot of people do their first P12 race and just get smashed. And so it takes a year to understand what you need to do for the following year. Um, so don't, don't get really demoralized from that first year of any upgrade, right? Um, even like threes are noticeably quicker. 
like you said, the tactics and stuff is more of the same. But if almost any category, when you upgrade and it's a it's a shock to the system, that's that happens to everybody. Just learn from it, get a little faster, and and go for it the next year or later in the season. Yeah, and Chad, it is getting hot in here. No, my thermostat is not set on. <laughs> I just, Jonathan I'm usually does that. To message somebody <laughs> turn the heat down. If anyone's listening at Trina Road, please yeah. turn down the, the heat in my office so this room gets less. Uh, and two, I have the fitness for a crit, but not a road race. A road yeah. race, I would get destroyed in the P12. Yeah. Anyways, that's a, that's, hopefully those are some tips about how to uh, upgrade easier. Okay, Chris. Uh, Chris has talking about overreaching. What does overreaching feel like to each of you? What signs do you look for uh, that it's time for some rest? It's a great question. Yeah. So before we talk about how each of us deal with it, it's been a while since we talked about uh, overreaching. Yeah, functional and mm-hmm. non-functional forms, and then of course overtraining syndrome. So uh, I was going to approach it from a slightly different angle and just talk about how um, we balance stress with recovery. And in, in it's, it's basically three scenarios: we either get positive adaptation, negative adaptation, or no adaptation. Mm-hmm. And positive is—I put it in quotes because you think positive adaptation is when I balance stress with recovery, when in fact it's when you eventually restore when you eventually recover and you restore balance. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're typically in what would appear to be a negative adaptation sort of approach or scenario where stress far outweighs recovery because we're inflicting a stimuli that tells our system we need greater resources and, and recovery is absolutely part of the picture, but we don't really level out until we finish uh, typically a recovery block, you know, that, mm-hmm. that fourth week at the end of a three-week loading cycle. Sort of thing. So I, I kind of want people to get over the fact that we're not always trying to keep stress and recovery in perfect balance. Over the course of a week, stress is higher, 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 and that recovery does not meet, mm-hmm. d- does not balance out. Ideally, by the end of the week, it comes closer to balance so that we can start another week effectively, do it again, run it down a little farther, bring it back up closer right. to balance. And then finally, we hit that recovery week where we do try to balance things out so that we emerge from that recovery week actually fitter ready yep. to tackle greater challenges. I, the, the way I always love to think about it is, is you're revving an engine, mm-hmm. so you want to rev it higher and higher and higher, yeah. and then let it go back down. And every time you rest, it goes back down further. So you're actually traveling further so in the stress continuum cool it, yeah. over and over and over. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, so with that in mind, um, I just want to briefly discuss just – to give writers and, and athletes an idea of what to look for when they think, is this the functional form of overreaching? Is this what I should be feeling? Or is this non-functional? Am I starting to head into those, those murkier waters where if I keep on pushing, maybe it could become really bad and eventually push me to overtraining syndrome, which carries really hefty consequences. Um, so first off, understand a term, uh, acute fatigue. This is what we do with every workout is, is we, we, we uh, heap on a bunch of fatigue really quickly and we're tired because of it. That's pretty much always okay. We have to do that. That's, mm-hmm. that's a necessary aspect of it. But in terms of achieving proper overload, we have to progress things at the rate um, in line with our rate of recovery. And that's where it gets really tricky. Because some athletes recover really well, uh, really quickly, just in general. Some athletes recover well after high intensity, whereas other athletes don't. Some athletes can deal with a ton of volume and recover well, whereas other athletes, it takes distinctly longer. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of get a sense for... You know, I'm not like that. I'm not like every other rider, but the signs of overreaching too far are similar across riders regardless. So when it comes to functional overreaching, which is what we're after, knocking ourselves down to a point where with a bit of rest, we rally and we can handle more work. 
um, you'll see you might see a decremented performance over the course of a loading phase, whether it's a week heading into a recovery day or three weeks head, heading heading into a recovery week. Um, performance might gradually tick downward, mm-hmm. but after resting for you know, be it a day at the end of a week or a full week at the end of a loading cycle. You rebound, and, mm-hmm. and performance starts to tick. It sort of basically returns to, to baseline or higher. So this com- happens a lot in the week where, like the the workouts later on in a block, yeah. are much harder than the uh, the workouts earlier. Yeah, and that could actually be a good thing because mm-hmm. you're putting yourself in this state. Absolutely, that's what you're looking for. But recognizing when that good thing starts <laughs> to sour mm-hmm. is the is yeah. the is the art is the trick of it all. So what you can watch for in, in terms of functional overreaching, the, the kind we're after, the desirable, the positive adaptation is your mood is pretty steady. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't get to that point where where you're flying off the handle or where you know you're verging on a bit of depression or anxiety is high that sort of thing. So mood stable, um, your immunity and health. You're not you're not getting ill. Yeah. You're not pushing yourself to the point of succumbing to an upper respiratory tract infection or something. And your sleep doesn't deal with disturbances. I mean, as soon as you push into those, the, the, the more undesirable, non-functional overreaching, sleep's one of the first things to suffer. It's a little harder to get to sleep. There's, there's more waking episodes. You don't wake up in the morning feeling refreshed. For sure. Yeah. Does that happen to you, Pete? Oh, yeah. I think I, that's the easily the first uh, barometer or first litmus test that I use is yeah. if, I can't, of sleep. if I can't fall asleep as quickly as I normally do, usually it's like, you know, fast enough that I don't, I'm not worried. Yep. Um, and this in and of itself, you, d- you don't have to panic. Right? Oh, I yeah. just had a, a bad night's sleep. I think I'm pushing into to non-functional overtraining. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to put a term on it. You think I'm, I, I need to back things off. I'm pushing too hard. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. This is when you start, ha- you start watching for repeat occurrences. Mm-hmm. One night's bad sleep, two oh. nights bad sleep, not a big deal. But when it's starting to happen three, four, five nights in a row, then you know something's up. It's time to time to dial it back. You might get excited about that one night. You're like, oh, I'm there. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. here. Adaption's coming. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys ever get night sweats when you yeah. go like oh, really God. hard workouts? Yeah. For sure. Especially if yeah. you do a criterium at night. Yeah, but, but, we, yeah. Call it, we call them like race legs or crit legs. But if you race late and your legs are sweating and you wake up and you wake up multiple times in the middle of the night with your legs either like they feel like they're firing or they're sweaty or your body's sweaty. Um, yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. After our big events like six hour lost and found I'll like that night I'll wake up just covered in sweat mm-hmm. totally tired it's or impossible. totally uh, cold a- mm-hmm. Emirate got her first taste of this ha- having done Donner triathlon she mm-hmm. her, her sleep was wrecked she was hot all night mm-hmm. she finally understand why I, I sleep under a sheet if I sleep under anything at all after I've done hard workouts mm-hmm. or a string of hard workouts because you're just revved it's mm-hmm. and, and, and sleep is impacted hopefully in, in the very short term though so in the case of functional overreaching um with a bit of recovery and we're talking days to maybe a week mm-hmm. you should be back on track mm-hmm. and if you're not and this is going to be the, the the outcome of all of these scenarios you need to adjust um, so psychologically physiologically there is a rebound so so you you undergo functional overreaching at the end of it you rest you come back you're ready to do it again legitimately ready and you recognize it on a number of levels if however you keep on pushing past that point of functional overreaching into non-functional territory this is where you start to deal with the sleep uh, sleep disturbances we just talked about where your mood does start to tank mm-hmm. and that can manifest in a lot of ways i mean higher anxiety maybe you're just not as sharp cog- in terms of cognition mm-hmm. maybe you start to deal with just a bit of depression we're not talking on a clinical level here but for some reason you're just down and you can't understand why you can't get back up 
um, you're more susceptible to colds and flus. And interestingly, I just read an article the other, or actually I'm in the midst of a book, really good one, where um, they draw the line between URTIs and what's called URS. So an upper respiratory tract infection is super common in endurance athletes, right? It happens all the time, but the symptoms for it, upper respiratory symptoms, can, can actually be present without there being an infection. Mm-hmm. And those symptoms can have the same impact on performance. So you, you can have poor workouts without actually having an infection. You can simply be exhibiting these symptoms, not actually be sick, and your wow. performance can tank because of it. And then, of course, you keep on pushing, and you can you know, contract the virus or bacteria or whatever it is that's trying to hmm. challenge your system. That's crazy. That yeah. is very crazy. How I think of it is when you're in a block – you know, your Tuesday, say Monday's rest day, <clears throat> Tuesday's good and hard. Then we get to Thursday and Saturday and Sunday. I can still complete them, but the RP goes way up yeah. for the same wattage. Yes, 100%. Yes. That's, 100%. that's exactly, and that's one of the points. Right. So RP, yeah, okay, we'll get to yeah. that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Oh, no, no, that's fine. No, that's Go fine. Ahead. Jump in whenever. Um, okay, so, I'll do it now. Just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> so, so I'm more, not to interrupt you. More, more non-functional <laughs> symptoms um, is fatigue. <laughs> So so a general form of fatigue. So Mm -hmm. obviously the workouts feel a bit fatigued, but you're also fatigued during rest and it doesn't really, doesn't really wane. You're just, Mm -hmm. you're, you're you're tired all the time. Um, general weakness and and performance starts to decline. And again, fine line here, right? I mean, you can see a a gradual performance decline when you're functionally overreaching. You can also see that same decline when you're non-functionally overreaching, but there's a rebound when it's functional, not so much when it's non-functional. Maybe on that, it's the time of what that's, you're in that state. To be able to like, it's all contextual. You have yeah. to recognize where you are in in whatever cycle, whatever phase of training, whatever point in that phase. Could like work stress and stuff change the amount you could change be in that state? Absolutely. So so I used to talk. Uh, it doesn't matter what I used to say. Now I see things in terms of training stress and life stress. And life stress is the catch all for everything that doesn't happen during the two hours of the day you train. Mm-hmm. So it's the other twenty two hours, as this this actual book puts it, as a lot of clinicians and, and sports scientists put it. Yeah. Hmm. What happens over the course of the other 22 hours makes a huge impact of what you can do over the course of the two hours you're training I and think, how you can respond to that training. I personally think that is such like so overlooked, especially by the people who are, we call them um, like the persona data scientists, who they look at their TSS and <clears> say, <throat> on paper, it on makes paper. complete sense that I should be able to do these, these intervals. Yep. Therefore, I challenge the training system or my power meter strong or my trainer strong mm-hmm. when really they just keep on pushing you know they had a bad day at work they had a fight with their spouse mm-hmm. um and you know and something else happened and uh, all of this stuff makes it so much harder yeah. uh to do you, the workouts. you have to be adaptive you have to be flexible you have to be willing to change things up when you recognize something's going wrong the challenge is when do you recognize it's actually going wrong mm-hmm. it's not just a bad day but you're you're having consistent bad days or you're seeing a a manifestation of a lot of these symptoms to the point where, you know, this is more than I usually deal with. I need to start, you know, maybe my recovery patch needs to happen now, whether Mm -hmm. it's days or week or a week. Yeah. Um, so, so with non-functional overreaching, you have your, you you reach your recovery week, but at the end of the week of the week, you don't emerge fresh and ready to, to, to go at it. Although most people will, will force themselves to anyway, even though they don't feel recovered, they don't feel up to the task. It's on the training plan. It's on my schedule. My coach is expecting it. Yeah, it's Monday. I'm going to do it. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't, doesn't <laughs> matter. So in, in this state, energy never really comes back. If you have muscle aches and soreness, it persists. It hasn't dissipated. It's not gone. Um, and RPE stays elevated. Mm-hmm. Everything's harder. If you're starting a new block after a recovery week and everything's harder, 
that right there is a red flag. I should tell you, I'm not up to the task. Those first couple workouts, assuming you get past the, you know, the initial yeah, that, getting back into it, should feel pretty good. Should yeah. be pretty encouraging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the, these are the, the signs that I feel like. One is um, when I am overreach, like functionally overreaching, mm-hmm. or actually this. So this this first one is when I think I should back it off. Is when I can't concentrate at work. And all you guys should do that too. Uh, <laughs> but you, you get that where you're, you you kind of just stare at the screen yeah. and you have like a simple email to write, but it takes forever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like a key sign for I've me that I need to- worked with a lot of people over the years who are bike racers who, I don't know why they come to work on Monday. They're, they're basically useless. They just had a big race weekend or a big training weekend. And I see them just staring at their computer yeah. screen. They're yeah. like, I did six hours yesterday. And you're like, I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. The second one is, this is a little bit more about functional overreaching, uh-huh. is I feel like my allergies get way worse. Like I get inflamed. It just happened this morning. I did three, yeah. three semi-good days in a row. But uh, yeah, you like... I just, I breathe in and I want to sneeze. You're in the midst of an insult to the system. So your immune system is at, you know, maybe not red alert, but it's it's, turned on, right? Yeah, for sure. And I'm inflamed from Mm -hmm. all this stuff. And inflammation is part and parcel with training stress. Exactly. So those are the kind of the things that I watch for. And if if it affects my mood or I can't concentrate, definitely time to take an easy day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And often enough, that easy day goes so far. If, if it's just like when you recognize, I think I might be getting a cold and you find a way to tone your stress down for a day, I just, <laughs> just take a day off. And yeah. I got to say, I haven't been like sick, sick nearly as often as in years past, because I'll, I'll see the signs and just, just take it easy, just in terms of stress and avoiding the stress, it, it doesn't take hold. And, you know, I'm back to work the next day rather than three or four days later or a week later. And the big thing is on those rest days to be mentally okay with taking the rest day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cause a lot a of y'all really good point. are type A people and you can't take the rest day without stressing out about it. Mm-hmm. So they're on the forum, someone just talked about it, uh, about how they have to do things. They don't want to take days off. Type, but I feel like A's. it adds more mental stress and then you don't sure. actually get the rest that you need. No, yeah. no, because type A's are typically like in sympathetic overdrive. We, we don't know how to, I mean, even if we don't recognize it, our sympathetic system is elevated. It's always mm-hmm. elevated because we're just processing, we're thinking, we're worrying, we're stressing. Even if it's a tolerable level, only because we've become accustomed to it, it's not good training. It doesn't allow you to recover. One of one of my biggest takeaways is when I was training a whole lot uh, is on rest days, focus on the recovery as your challenge or your workout yeah. for the day. It's so training. It's, it's good, training. It's absolutely training. Yeah. So so spend if you would have spent two hours like riding, if you had a two hour workout or a three hour workout, I would be like, well, I'm going to do two hours or three hours of mm. stretching, foam rolling, like some core strength, you know, a little watching like, movies, watching <laughs> movies. Couch, yeah. yeah, but it, it would be f- you, you work just as hard at your recovery as you do at your training. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge thing that makes your one, if you drop in a day every week or, or however often you need to do it, if you do it right, man, it's worth t- tons and tons of overall in your, in your training. Absolutely. And, and it lends to a greater level of consistency mm-hmm. and high quality consistency too. It's not, you're, you're not just getting the workouts done, but you're getting them done well. Yep. Uh, George Hincapie is famous for this of, uh, in some books and Lance would say that he just, as soon as they get back from a ride, he's like laying on the couch, feet up and maybe asleep and asking everyone to bring him stuff. <laughs> he doesn't want to get up because he, yeah. he knows At that it, level. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you want to perform well, I mean, maybe not get everyone to bring you stuff, but instead of, um, I think someone said, oh, on the days off, I want to go through all my mechanical <laughs> stuff. I want to like tweak my bike and check uh, everything. It's still very stressful. Exactly. Yeah. And all the things you could do, yeah. um, if you just, you know, comedians in cars, getting coffee, mm-hmm. new seasons mm-hmm. out. Just watch all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lay on the couch. B- binge on your... the season of something. Yep. It's yeah. great. 
Okay, so non-functional overreaching, you're in it, you recognize the signs, or maybe you've chosen to ignore them, and you keep on pushing. Eventually, you can push yourself to the point of actually achieving overtraining syndrome. And the syndrome, so a number of uh, symptoms, number of aspects of it that are all harmful. Um, basically, fatigue has become a constant part of your life. So it's mm-hmm. not just, I, I feel I feel run down and you give yourself a couple of days off and it rebounds. You can give yourself a couple of weeks off and you're not going to rebound. It is now part of life <clears throat> and it's a long, hard road back. Uh, performance, obviously, tanks. It's just going down, 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 swir- mm-hmm. swirling the drain. Um, greater incidence of illness because your immune system is just in a constantly compromised state. Um, you can actually see muscle loss along with fat gain. So double whammy there. Um, and then you've got biological disruptions ranging from, you know, affecting sleep, appetite, menstruation in women, um, neurological imbalances also affecting sleep, but your mood, your libido, your ability to concentrate, and then hormonal dysregulation, everything from testosterone to cortisol, the ratio between the two, um, adrenal corticotropic hormone, which, uh, has to do with, uh, I can't, I, I should have made a note. It's a major impact on, I can't remember. I'll have to look it up. Epinephrine, norepinephrine, but either way, you're hormonally out of whack and it's not going to restabilize anytime soon. So this, at, at this point, if you've actually managed to push yourself this far, and we've talked in the past how you actually have to be a pretty high level athlete to go this far mm-hmm. down the, down the uh, rat hole. Uh, um, if you've actually reached this, the, the road back is at best months, very probably many months to the point of, I don't know about multiple years, but you throw away the rest of your season for sure. Oh, season's gone. It might be the next season too. 10 months, Mm -hmm. 12 months. Yeah. And then the road back is a slow, careful one. It's Mm -hmm. a drag. I've seen it described and you can't, you have to be so delicate with everything you do, making sure you're keeping it on track and you're not pushing yourself back into that state because you're downright fragile. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of this happening to people, you know? Yeah. And, uh, one of the best, uh, stories I have is, I won't say any names, but, uh, this guy who was always pretty good. Um, but he trained a ton and rode all the time. And he crashed and broke his arm or something, um, but a real crash. And he took two months off and couldn't, I mean, it was a bad, and he came back and he was absolutely flying, right? Like it took, oh, gotcha. right? It, yeah. he, he just needed that two months yeah. of nothing to, he was way faster after two months of not riding than he had been in the previous, like year or two that I, I'd known him. And mm-hmm. that might not even be overtraining syndrome. That could just have been non-functional overreaching right. that he needed recovery from. Yeah. But but, the, but even that, even the non, non-functional side of things where you haven't pushed yourself all the way to actual overtraining syndrome, which is really hard to diagnose, by the way, it's it's it can be a long, a long way back. It might not be, I just need an extra week of recovery this time or a couple extra days. It could be a, f- a few weeks, a couple months to get you back on track. The With the real chronic or the actual syndrome, Everybody who more or less gets that in bicycle racing never comes back. Careers, it's over. Over, yeah. Right? They like they miss their window, or it breaks them psychologically, yeah. or they never come back. They just can't get back. Yeah. yeah. So you you just don't see them anymore, and it's usually like the under twenty five year olds who have ride who are like they they're capable and mm-hmm. they're driven and they have the time and the the energy and they do mm-hmm. it. And then after a couple of years, they just sort of mm-hmm. float off and yeah. happens often. Triathletes too. These are people doing sure. like, I'm, I'm sure it could happen with less hours, Endurance but what I've seen in general, 20 to 30 hours a week <laughs> for yeah. a long time with intensity. Yeah. yeah. The volume is, is key. Or if you have overall stress, right? Yeah. If you have a super stressful job and you're doing 10 to 15 hour weeks, sleeping five hours a night. Oh man. I, and one of the things that <clears throat> I picked up or that was extremely helpful for me is as you're 
weeks or your blocks go, prioritize rest more as your right. Like it, as your volume increases and your intensity increases, prioritize rest more often. Recovery in general. Mm-hmm. So not just the not just the rest side of things, right. but also the nutrition side of things. I, everything, right? You want to build yourself up to be capable of withstanding this really yeah, tough you're training. Building, you're building a better human. It mm-hmm. takes materials. It takes focus on or attention to all of these symptoms. So to, to sum it up, regardless of where you are in this continuum, um, hopefully you're more to the left than the right. When you start to recognize persistent symptoms, that's when you start to take note. Mm-hmm. A day or two here and there, no big deal. But when it starts to happen recurrently, that's when you start to, to worry. So if performance is slipping, 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 fatigue's ratcheting up, doesn't seem to be coming down, you can't, re- can't normalize it after a day or a week of rest, sleep quality is suffering, your mood, and that includes motivation, a bit of depression, your, your overall stress level, illness is on the rise, you're a little more susceptible to bugs, um, or you've got symptoms even, mm-hmm. that's, that's absolutely worth uh, taking note of. And then general muscle soreness that doesn't dissipate. And I always think about the times where you talk about how your legs were always sore. They still are I think you were. always sore. <laughs> that, I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't remember last time they were not, before Leadville, they were not sore. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if, if I taper. were your coach, I, I would absolutely be concerned about that. Yeah. And, and, it's much easier err on the side of caution with this. If you if you're considering that you might be close, closing in on that on the spectrum, man, just back it off. Why not just be cautious? To, why not be cautious? Sure, and that's because we want to be faster. That's, no, I and, get that. And yeah, we yeah, want I volume. Yeah, it's it's. I I understand. It's totally. It's not the right. It's, it's not hard way to, to yeah. digest. Yes. Yep. But it doesn't have to be a, an about face. You don't have to just stop training or or, or just take a couple days off. You can dial your training intensity down a little bit, shorten the duration of the workouts. So you can just tweak a workout mm-hmm. or a couple of workouts, you know, maybe not even missing the point of it. Maybe a five interval workout becomes a four interval workout. Maybe a, a two hour weekend ride or a three hour weekend ride gets trimmed in half. I mean, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be total neglect of your training and then nutrition, especially in terms of vegetable and protein intake, because so many endurance athletes get so caught up in carbohydrates and it's usually refined to, to some extent mm-hmm. that vegetables, vegetables and all the micronutrients and the fiber and the water that come with them, that goes away. And then protein gets neglected too. And protein is so vital in the recovery process. Mm-hmm. And then finally consider recovery as it relates to you. Be super subjective about this because recovery rates and, and recovery rates relative to different forms of stress are different. I mean, mm-hmm. for, different for different riders. They're, they're incomparable. I mean, you, you might meet someone that you have certain parallels with, but I promise you those parallels end at some point. Mm-hmm. No rider is just like any other rider. Don't look at a pro. But yeah. that's me. Don't, don't even look at your buddy. I yeah, mean, don't even. A good example is if I did back to back Baxters, I would be torched. And Nate can do them. Twice a day, forever, pretty yep. much. But if I do one hour of on-off, five hundred watt, thirty-second ones, I can pretty much do those forever. Same here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yep, yeah. I'm with you. Okay, and we um, both feel fine afterwards, right? You, like you do a Baxter, and you're like, eh. Baxter's fine. Yeah, yeah, I've done a lot, and I think too for I don't want to let go of the volume. What I try to do is optimize the recovery, mm-hmm. and I think there's still in my life big gains to be ha- had, perhaps with recovery, and probably all of our lives. Yeah. Um, of trying to reduce stress, better nutrition. I think that's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, nutrition it, it ties to... always blows my mind that people don't prioritize nutrition. Yeah. It's crazy. But then better sleep. Well, yeah. And the harder you're trying at training, the harder you should try at nutrition and recovery and rest. All of those things should ramp accordingly. Yeah. Don't don't sacrifice any of those other things they, for they more move training. Lock, lockstep. Mm-hmm. Now, let's do two more and then get into the uh, questions. Terry asks, I currently ride an endurance bike, a Giant Content SL2 disc, and would like to upgrade to an aero bike, Scott Foil 10 disc. 
All the research I do ever says that I should ride an endurance bike. What I can, what can I do to see if I am flexible, strong enough to ride an aero bike? Um, and then he goes on. He really wants to get the aero bike. So, gentlemen, the first thing that makes me that jumps out at this is all the research says he has to ride an endurance bike. I'm guessing he's an older gentleman. He doesn't say his age, mm-hmm. but what I've seen is endurance bikes kind of uh, marketed towards older people, and that's because it might hurt to be in that position. But what do you guys think? Do you need to be a certain flexibility or strength? Do you need to test, be able to test something before you can ride an aero bike or a more aggressive bike? I mean, even an aero bike can be set up to, 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 to allow a person to effectively ride like an endurance bike. I mean, it, exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. that's the, yeah. The best part is if your bike fits you or if, if, Almost any bike can be made to fit you. you you're gonna yeah, have yeah. to. You're gonna have to go way off the rails That's to a get a way to put it. Yep. To get a bike, road that, bikes, a road bike that doesn't fit you, um, or doesn't accommodate your strength and and flexibility. Yeah. So I would imagine aero road bikes can. Almost all aero road bikes can be fit to you. Yeah. So Terry says he can touch his his uh, his hands on the floor flat. By bending over. I've never seen, um, people always talk about flexibility. I've never experienced this and I'm a pretty inflexible person about not being able to bend over in a TT bike or road bike because of flexibility. Usually it's in that position. I feel pain from being mm-hmm. too low in discomfort mm-hmm. or my hip angles off so much that I can't put out power. Have you guys experienced flexibility issues? Yeah. I don't know that flexibility. I mean, maybe it has a bit of an impact on aerodynamics because you want this super low position, but that super low position probably probably doesn't hinge on your flexibility so much as the fact that you can't put out power in such a constricted position. Yeah. I I always think of, uh, this is kind of a blanket statement, but the people who are ultra flexible aren't necessarily as strong. Mm -hmm. And so it's the combination of the flexibility and the strength, which allows you to ride in aggressive positions. Um, the, The putting your hands flat on the floor is a good indicator that you probably are flexible, but it matters a lot more about, um, like, being able to hold yourself on the drops and um, yeah, depending just, your your posture while you're actually riding. I just see someone as being someone who's extremely flexible who can get contor- contort their his her body into a really aggressive aerodynamic position isn't going to be able to make power. I don't think flexibility is the limitation. I think the hip angle, the body position, mm-hmm. the you know where where you have to hold and keep your head yeah. in place and keep your head. Yeah. So those, those are the concerns. Terry, what I would do is you know you can look at the stack and reach of both bikes. You need to figure out where your, you know, where your hands would be on your hoods. And then you can, you can figure out, okay, how many spacers do I need and what size stem do I need on this bike in order Mm -hmm. to to work? And if you go to slow twitch, they have tools and actually like a library of bikes to help you do this um, and to do the math about what degree stem is going to be what, what far, what, how far out. But in general, unless you're going to be on that endurance bike and have a whole bunch of spacers. Um, so you're like really, really high and people who have, who do this, usually have bad backs and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but you don't sound like that. Um, you can totally make, um, an aero bike fit like a endurance bike. If you're not mm-hmm. in the extremes, as Pete said, mm-hmm. uh, so I would just, I don't, there's nothing wrong with having spacers. I got a bunch of spacers. Yeah. Nate's bike is very tall. Yeah. Cause I have a XL and then it still mm-hmm. needs to be tall, uh, in order for it to work. So there it's right. Yeah. We see no issue with it. The yeah. one thing that, um, TT bikes is different because with TT bikes, you can get in positions where you can't, or the bikes are so different and people's positions are so different. You can get in situations where no matter what aero bar you choose, you can't get the right fit. You mm-hmm. either can't get low enough or you can't get high enough. 
you can't get close enough, you can't get far enough out. Yeah. That is a lot more about um, you really have to look for a bike that fits you. Where with road bikes, uh, I don't, they just don't seem that much different. Mm -hmm. Slow Twitch is another good resource on that matter too, right? Telling oh, yeah. you which TT bikes are oh, the right bike for your body. It is amazing on TT bikes. They, they won't tell you about the right ones for your body, but if you know your position, yeah. you can put stuff in and they'll help you build gotcha. um, all your, you know, what, what bars should I use and all that sort of thing. And what kind of sizes you could you could be against, mm -hmm. which brings me to the final question. Um, this isn't this is more an uh, observation that I made that I think will help people save, maybe save a lot of money. Okay, so yeah. just recently I've had a we've talked about TT bikes a ton here, and my position on the TT bike I like a lot of all probably a lot of people here. Um, I think people fall in two camps: either they can put out the same amount of power on the road bike. Or they put out drastically less. It's never uh, like TT bike. On a sorry, yeah, on a TT bike, mm -hmm. it's never like five watts difference. It's usually pretty big, and for me, it's about twenty-one watts difference between TT bike and road bike. Um, I was recently doing uh, what? Nothing. I was uh, making fun of your about twenty-one watts. Yeah, did you say twenty-one? <laughs> you said that. Yeah. Approximately. I did. Uh, well, you know, power meters plus or minus one point five percent. So yeah, who knows? Yeah, okay. But I, I did the twenty watts. I did the ramp test back to back, and that was the difference. Mm -hmm. Um, my TT position also, we have the UCI constraints if you're racing road and that can also do things right. That are bad. Mm -hmm. So I just rode my TT bike outside preparing for Santa Rosa with my setup with how it is. It is extremely flexy. You saw it, right? Yeah. We were, we were playing with it. It's, it would scare me. It, really. it did scare me. Yeah. So you hit, start hitting bumps yeah. and like inches <laughs> of flex as you're going down 30 and Santa Rosa, the 70.3, which Rough I was going to do the, the bike. Yeah. Very rough. Yeah. Uh, I actually, I was so scared and it been so much. I was afraid of like carbon breaking that I called my wife and she picked me up in the middle of my ride. Hmm. So that being said, I'm, I'm thinking about doing a whole season of all the TTs on my road bike with aero bars. Clip-ons. Yep. Clip-ons. Hmm. And yep. I want to get tested in the wind tunnel or, um, some of these at home devices. That's interesting. Because what, so here's a few things that make me think that we could kind of even this out and you could save a whole bunch of money if you could do this we know that in general a tt bike the frame saves very little um mm -hmm. in terms of like aerodynamics to like an aero road bike mm -hmm. you know what i mean like mm -hmm. five watts or something and some i think the venge too is they said it's as arrow as the shiv for the road position yeah it, i'm sure it's close right yeah. we're, we're talking small yeah single exactly. digits it's oh. the position that really matters Correct. and on the tt bike what you do is you get uh at least for me uh, this is like the new way to do it is you get rotated forward and when you rotate forward your saddle goes up because you're going to be more above that bottom bracket so to have the same uh the same position from bottom bracket to your saddle as you move the saddle forward the saddle has to go up and what that does is it you have two choices. Your pads, you can either raise your pads, and that increases your frontal area, or if you lower your pads, you get a much tighter hip angle. Mm -hmm. And with me, that's what I've always struggled with. You get the tight hip angle, you can't put out power. Plus, I can't, you know, I've got the, being a tall guy, you have other issues that people don't have where you can't <laughs> reach anywhere and you got to jumble up. Yeah. So what I, what I wonder is, on the road bike, with a laid-back position, so more like, think of you're racing, racing a crit and you're in the drops, mm -hmm. that's kind of your position, but your, your arm's in the middle. Um, one thing we know, Chad, is that there's an adaption period there too, like riding the drops. Sure. I feel like I put out not as much power as I do climbing, mm -hmm. but I think I'm more likely to adapt to that. 
So what I'd like to do is go in the wind tunnel and figure out with this position, I'd actually be, I have a lower frontal area too, because my saddle's lower and my bars can be lower hmm. with pretty much the same hip angle. If the, the loss that I'm getting from the, the air road bike and the drop bars can be less than the 21 Watts. Mm-hmm. I, I'm on your side. I think it's going to be less. Yeah, right. I, I, I think too. I think you'll be able to ride faster on your road bike. It's a much subtler change. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder how many people who struggle with this are in the same boat. And there, there are the people that put out the same power and then TT bike all day long. Yeah. But if you can get a, a lower frontal area on your road bike and put out more power, yeah, there's got to be you got to have like big problems with your um, I don't know with your aerodynamics mm-hmm. in other parts of your bike to order to make up the difference sure. there. I, I keep thinking of the guys who have like a eight-year-old TT frame that they ride like three times before they're given TT. Yeah. I I mean, I'm not going to say whether it's which one's faster, but I know which one I would rather ride. Okay. I would way rather ride my road bike with clip-ons uh-huh. and not have to worry and not deal. Yeah. It's comfy. You're not, I was, I'm always so sore after I ride a TT bike. Like if it's a stage race or the next day, you know, you can tell you thrashed yourself on your TT bike and Oh, I don't it's know. a different story if you're a triathlete and you don't have any UCI rules yeah. and you can like, it's the only bike you're riding and you're going to adapt. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to run afterwards. So yeah. the, maybe the less Watts is not such a big deal because you're going to, you're putting out, you're using less energy and you got to run afterwards. Mm-hmm. But for people doing <clears throat> three stage races a year, mm-hmm. yeah. TT bikes are expansive. Yeah. And on top of it, any sort of course that has a level of technicality oh, and you're mm-hmm. on your road bike instead of a TT or, bike. Yeah, or, or climbing. climbs. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah, Jeez. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I say four pounds on my road bike versus the TT bike. Oh, I didn't even consider the weight. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's only going to be usually in TTs that, that really doesn't make a big difference. But if it's an uphill TT yeah, or there's – Some courses it does, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The technical aspect could be interesting. So uh, there's a – the three-day state women's stage races coming up i know but we have lee mccormick coming at the same time Ooh. so we're gonna have like six hours of mountain bike training Perfect. and then do a race and then do it again and then do a race and then do it again and then do a race sounds wonderful could be tough <laughs> <laughs> so i just i wanted to let people know for santa rosa um i was gonna do the it on my road bike with clip on arrow bars i got the venge arrow bars but the way my hydraulic hoses are they're a little bit too short and when i clip them on my brakes don't work <laughs> which is important um so i've told yeah. Unless you're racing a crit. Yeah, unless uh, you're racing a crit, then you don't, don't need, need them. them. <laughs> but so basically, unless I rerun all of my hoses like today, when I'm supposed to go there, I can't do it. And I don't want to do it on my road bike. But at the same time, an hour away is the San Rafael crit, which is a USA crit, yeah. which mm-hmm. is big time. There's barriers, though, as you guys were talking about, like Flo exit Sports points. Cover that. Mm-hmm. It's going to be on TV. Yeah, we can watch you. Will computer. my race be on TV? Yes. Yeah, the whole day. Oh, we can watch you. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone just shake <laughs> their head in shame. Uh, but <laughs> so uh, anyways, I'm going to be there at Santa Rosa. I'm going to, uh, my sister's racing it and check in. I think even my relay partner, we're going to check in and he's going to do the swim and then we'll just DNF. And I'm going to go down to San Rafael, do the 35 plus three, four race, go back to Santa Rosa, pick my sister up and come back. So, uh, please say hi. Um, super fun if you do, and I'll see you there. You guys ready for some questions? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, bike culture theory asks, not sure if you guys are taking questions on here, but I have a question about crit racing strategies. I did my first official fast corner crit two weeks ago. Um, bike culture theory, really, uh, I'm plugging our own stuff. Well, of course I'm plugging our <laughs> stuff, but 
YouTube.com slash trainer road. There is a uh, race analysis series. Watch those videos. Pete is critiquing all the things that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple things. Well, a lot of things poorly. I've learned so much. And I think a lot of people have learned a lot too. So mm-hmm. anything we could mention here would just be, um, not as great a detail because you can see it happening in the race. Oh, watch those. Uh, he said, um, should I, should I keep going solo or get in the group behind? Um, it depends. If you think it was really fitness, uh, based that got you dropped, then I think doing a solo TT probably gets you greater overall fitness gains for your time in the race. If you feel like it was the cornering, that was the problem. Wait up, wait for the group behind you. Um, practice your cornering, uh, do, do whatever's holding you back in the race, get more time at that. Yeah. Cool. So, <laughs> yep. Um, Mur Fisher asks for, he says, question mid sole cleat replace replacement for a triathlon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if he's asking how to do it or just what do we think of it? And the idea here is because you are so far forward and above the bottom bracket by pushing your cleat back, you kind of get that, um, more of the same relationship you have in the road bike. Mm-hmm. I had patella tendon problems for a long time, right. and I did this when I first started racing, and it really helped. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty extreme, though. Is that talk, isn't that where you center the cleat under the shoe? Like, actually requires drilling. You don't use the. Creek? I've never drilled it. Some people do drill it. Uh-huh. It's like really scary for me because I feel like I'd pull it out. Because I've always had my cleats backed up to the fullest extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Yep. Yeah, there's. And I, yeah, I have an aggressive road position and I have my cleats as far back as they Uh will go Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, so it's basically, we think it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Unless he's talking about the extreme end of things and I don't have a whole lot of information on that. So don't drill holes in your shoes. (laughs) Like that scares me. Get custom made shoes if you want to really get something crazy going. Yeah. Uh, Michael says light pro is who is doing that now. So the midsole. Okay. Okay. Looking for more questions. We got dead air. I think no. Jonathan usually talks to Yeah, these I think things. he does. How can he talk and read at the same time? <laughs> I don't know. Jonathan's so impressive. He's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's, oh, here we go. What's up, guys? When are you going to release the sprinting video? Yeah, we've, uh, okay, we got our, the guy doing it right here in the room. Tucker, how long till the sprinting video is out? Just, you say something quick. Two weeks? Two, he, he's saying, yeah, two weeks. Cool. Okay, we'll see. And he, he didn't even say anything. He just shook his head. Yes. <laughs> we put that in his mouth. Um, here, Jesse Motor says, how often can I do 30-30s and what would a good 30-30 workout look like? Hmm, good question. Chad, what's your favorite 30-30 workout? Um, is it Clouds Rest or are those 30-30s? Those might be one minute. Man, that's a really... Uh, you can go in the workout crate or you can go in the workout list and just type 30-30 and it will, they'll, they'll all come out. Um, but my rest, if it is 30 30s is definitely one of my faves. My favorite is Spanish needle. Yeah. 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 So thir- clouds rest. And I just, the other day did, I think plus three or plus four, but you can, you can nudge them up. The, the plus three is 75 minutes worth of those bad boys. And it's, it's a long workout, but mm-hmm. they're 30 30s. And I think those are absolutely one of the best ways to increase aerobic capacity without <laughs> burning yourself out. I, especially during this time <clears throat> of year. Like I feel like. There's no way I can mentally ramp up and do a solid, do a threshold workout or do anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I can jump into some 30-30s. And, and, that's, and that's the beauty of these mm-hmm. is you can do a lot of them. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I say you, 
and that's a bit of a generalization. Some people don't respond as well as people like Pete and I do. However, these don't exact nearly the toll. Um, I think uh, four by 12. So over the course of that, you got six minutes at mm -hmm. VO2 max. Try to do a six minute VO2 max repeat at, in this case, 130%. Not gonna it's not, not going to happen, but you can amass the, the same amount of time, the same amount of muscular stretch, a really high level of oxygen uptake, all mm -hmm. the things you want out of a workout that has you doing effectively over the course of that, that's what, 24 minutes of time at VO, VO2 max, which is a huge workout, but it does it in such a way that you actually, in a lot of cases, can do it tomorrow mm -hmm. and do it the next day. I've stacked three of these end to end and come out of that week into the next week on an upswing. Wow. David has a question. Uh, I made the break with four unattached riders in yesterday's four or five crit, but I was on the largest team, five races in a 30 man field. I decided to do a little, to do little work and skip pulls, uh, letting the break fall back, put more of us in reach of the podium. We ended up sweeping it. I finished second, but was this a bad strategy? Thanks for TR pushing my FTP from 190 to 300 this year. Oof. So that's, that's first, that's a great improvement, uh, David, but basically what he's saying is if you're in the breakaway. And you got a bunch of teammates that have a good chance. Can you sabotage that breakaway? For sure. Um, and I think more. It's less up to you. Uh, it's more up to the guy, the four individual riders in the break. Like, what, recognize. Get, get rid of that guy. Yeah. Right. Like, it's he's going to only do one thing, and that's wait for his teammates and not help. They can't be surprised mm -hmm. if you're yeah. a disruptor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And David they can't hold it against you either. When you say was this a bad strategy, like. The results are the best way to show if it's a good strategy or not. You go. If you swept the podium, that's mm -hmm. a great strategy, right? <laughs> like, uh, it, yeah, I think this sort of stuff doesn't happen enough where people could be in the breakaway and, you know, you want to win and there's a bunch of sprinters with you who, you know, uh, like locally there's Jose and Scott waters, great sprinters. I'm not going to ever out sprint them. I wouldn't want to be in a breakaway with them just <laughs> rolling to the line. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's my worst chance. Yep. It's much better for me to wait and, and either have them try to kick me off, which is hard to do. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do to kick someone off a breakaway that's sitting on, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. I, I really, yeah, it's, it's all about, um, yeah, making him cover moves and, and, but if, if you don't care about going back to the field, then it's, they, they don't care at all. Right. It, it's all, it's all up to the four guys to drop the guy and then out race the team of five, you know? And so, yeah, it sounds to me like you were doing it right. Okay, still looking for some more questions. <laughs> uh, Jonathan's going to be so sad. He's going to be like, guys, what were you doing? Um, how about... Um, man. Someone says, what's the best strategy for 3030s or similar on a non-erg trainer? Um, I think it's really easy on a non-erg trainer because what you do is you just drop in, like you drop chain rings. Mm -hmm. So big to little, yeah. mm -hmm. and it's almost always like a perfect, uh, easy to hard. Mm -hmm. If you're one by, you just got, I've done that too. Um, usually it's probably down three gears. Yeah. So with SRAM, you just dump them. Like mm -hmm. you go mm -hmm. and I go to like a really easy gear. And then as like a couple seconds before the interval, I go click, 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 mm -hmm. which happens like you need to do that a lot in races, uh, do oh, multiple yeah. clicks at once. Yeah. So it's kind of like good training to do that. Okay. What do you guys think? We done? I guess we did it. Oh, Jonathan, please come back. <laughs> yeah. uh, good luck at nationals. Uh, thanks, everyone. If you want to find out more about Trainer Road, uh, go to trainerroad.com. Remember that pricing uh, update. So if you want to lock in, please sign in this week uh, or sign up this week. And also, please uh, like this video, uh, subscribe, and comment. It really helps us grow the channel. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Bye, guys.